And that's a critical aspect of what functional medicine is doing, because it's not just trying to take, you know, oh, let me just take fish and throw it at this. Oh, you know, let me take, you know, B vitamins and throw it at this or magnesium, but rather let's really understand what's happening with the individual, what the triggers are and where the imbalances are and treat them in that way. Welcome to the Tomination Time podcast. I normally stream diet and fitness on Twitch with my waifu, Helen. These podcasts will be edited portions of the stream. We'll go over diet, fitness, motivation, ergonomics, and more. Don't forget to follow us on twitch.tv slash Tomination Time and leave your notifications on for when we go live. Welcome, everyone. We have a special guest here today, Dr. Hannaway, exclamation mark, Hannaway in chat, if you want to see more about him. He's an MD, served on many prestigious boards. He's a chief, he is the chief medical education officer at the Institute of Functional Medicine, IFM. Uh, he's paved the way for functional medicine collaboration with the Cleveland, Cleveland Clinic, and he's done a lot more. You can just look, look him up on ifm.org. Dr. Patrick Hannaway, or just Google Dr. Patrick Hannaway. I think the first link is the ifm.org um, link. So he's done a lot of stuff with functional medicine. Uh, really excited to have him here. And just a quick overview on how the flow of this is going to be. We're going to do a, a lot of um, interview style, podcast style discussion uh, with me and Dr. Hannaway. And then we are going to intermittently open up for some Q&A in chat. So if you're in chat and you have questions, uh, I will announce when we're going to do a, a Q&A session, probably once every like 45 minutes, we'll grab a um, couple of questions at that time. So, so don't queue it up now because I'm just going to blow away all the questions. Uh, we'll, we'll open up the queue occasionally and then um, I'll grab a couple. We'll ask it and then we'll resume some of the discussion. And um, some of the topics we're talking about today, you can see in the chat down below about what introduction to functional medicine, um, tracking our rest, our gut health, our poop, uh, nutrition, and uh, kids nutrition, and also some other, you know, Q&A, we'll see what comes up. So Dr. Hanway, it is an absolute honor to have you here. Thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thanks so much. This is my, uh, my first Twitch. So uh, I'm looking forward to uh, being able to engage and talk with uh, your audience and uh, your followers and, you know, looking forward to the kinds of uh, uh, exploratory questions uh, we'll get into over the next couple hours. All right. So we are back. We had to do some quick troubleshooting on stream, but we are ready to get started. And uh, one of my first questions for you, Dr. Hanaway, is about functional medicine. So for those who don't know what functional medicine is, are you able to give a quick overview and in particular to explain the differences between integrative versus functional versus alternative versus complementary? Because a lot of times these terms get kind of conflated with each other. Sure, absolutely. So um, functional medicine is a systems biology view, systems medicine. View. So we're taking a systems lens, looking at the interrelationship of what's going on. In the process of doing that, we're listening to the person's individual story, being able to hear what the elements are and then being able to personalize treatment. Now that all sounds good. Everyone's like, oh yeah, I'll have some of that. That's, that's a great idea. So how does that differ from integrative medicine? Uh, the difference there is going to be that with functional medicine, it's 
an operating system. It's a way of thinking about a problem. Whereas integrative medicine is going to be focused more on uh, a grab bag of different kinds of therapeutics. Oh, you've got problems, let's give you a probiotic. Oh, you have, you know, uh, energy problems, let's give you a B vitamin. And, and so it's more reflexive and doesn't really have an operating system. Now, if we look at things like traditional Chinese medicine or Ayurvedic medicine or Tibetan medicine, all of those have an operating system to think through problems. And that's what we do with medicine. So it integrates uh, a lot of the different kinds of therapeutic approaches and whether it's going to be around um, acupuncture or herbs or nutraceuticals or botanicals or, or food. And we take a food first approach when we're doing this because we find that, you know, so much can be helped with nutrition. Now, complementary medicine is just saying that which is complementary to the standard uh, allopathic Western medicine that is going on. Uh, side note here, you know, in our studies that, uh, that we've done at the Cleveland Clinic looking at functional medicine, you know, compared to standard of care, it's standard of care or standard of care plus functional medicine, you know, being able to demonstrate an, an improvement. So we're, we include good medicine as part of what we do. It's not other than, but it's including, you know, of all the benefits of Western medicine and, uh, and then adding to it with a, a view that allows us to deal with complex chronic diseases in about, right now we see more than hundred million Americans, um, you know, fit that bill of complex chronic disease. And so they need some help over and above just anti-hypertensives, lipid lowering, antibiotics, antidepressants. Most of those kinds of therapies are focused on suppressing symptoms rather than getting to the root cause. Um, so the, the metaphor that I use a lot with patients is to say, look at a tree. And if we see that there's something going on with one of the branches or limbs of the tree, which would be equivalent to like a branch of medicine, neurology, gastroenterology, psychiatry, the goal is not to like, okay, suppress what's happening there, but rather go down to the roots of the tree. And those roots, which are going to be our modifiable lifestyle factors, our nutrition, exercise and movement, sleep and rest, how we deal with stressors, what meaning and purpose is in our life. We're focusing there. And we're also focusing on the soil. Does the soil have toxins in it? Does the soil have hidden in it? Does the soil have allergens in it? What are those things that might be extrinsic for me that are causing imbalances? And what are the things that I'm doing that are causing imbalances? So that's sort of a, hmm. a, a first pass at it. And we can get into many details because then, you know, we, we look at, the, at these different functions. The term functional medicine goes to the consideration of, you know, there are simple functions that happen in our bodies, in each organ, in each cell, uh, in our families, in our communities. And so those functions would be saying, how do I get the food and nutrients that I need? Light, love, macronutrients, micronutrients. How do I get them? How do I bring them in? Oxygen. Well, how do I get rid of that, which I don't need? Elimination uh, and biotransformation. How do I have a mechanism of defense and repair, whether we call it the immune system or the police force or the military? How do I work with uh, being able to produce energy? 
you know, through mitochondria, focusing on, on energy production? How do I have aspects of transportation and communication and infrastructure? So those are the functions. And that's how I, when I see mm. someone, I'm thinking about what's the root cause and what's happening with the functioning going on in their body, which is a little different than the way I was taught in medical school, where I focused on an organ system. Oh, is it the heart? Is it the lungs? Is it the, is it the brain? I actually, it's the whole person. And so I'm looking at the whole person. Yeah, I really like that systems approach and how everything is just interconnected because um, just a quick story of my own. I have ankylosing spondylitis diagnosed with it and uh, could not get a good answer for why this is happening, but researched a little bit into in the functional medicine approach, cut out gluten. And I, I did, I'm really summarizing it, but basically saw a str really strong correlation with my AS symptoms and gluten. And I told my rheumatologist about this and she was almost in disbelief that diet, you know, something in the gut could lead to something like a systematic, uh, systemic inflammation. And so like that, that speaks to your point about just how a lot of traditional doctors have kind of split apart the systems into as if they don't they don't work together but i i can i i like that approach of the functional medicine approach um obviously i'm, I'm you know biased team functional medicine here but uh my question though is all of this can sounds I, can i speak yeah to yeah that? go ahead just a second yep. before you go i just i want to say like it, it's fascinating to me because I can go back 30 to 40 years and show the papers in the peer-reviewed research in gastroenterology that says, oh, ankylosing spondylitis happens with people who have a particular genetic predisposition. It's called HLA-B27, which we can test and measure for. And it's when their, their guts have an imbalance of a gut, of a gut microbiota you know, called Klebsiella. And when that Klebsiella actually goes through a leaky gut, and the antibodies, but immune system says, hey, you're not supposed to be here. And it, it creates an antibody. Well, that antibody to that particular bacteria is, looks just like the antibody that would be made to the, um, the components of the connect issue in the, in the lower back, in the sacrum, uh, and causing spotlightus. Like that's not even new research. That's been done. 30 so to to say oh we don't how could it well the food determines what's going to happen with your gut microbiome and the food and stress and other things determine happen with your permeability and those are things we can do something about can't do anything about predisposition we can search the other things instead of just saying, oh, you should be on a biologic for the rest of your life. That might have some some long term side effects, and it's pretty expensive. Yeah, um, the the functional medicine approach is it sounds so good in theory, and for for those who don't deal with chronic inflammation, uh, they may not they they may be skeptical about this because they never had a need for functional medicine, and so a lot of skeptics out there they view like. Uh, alternative medicine, complementary medicine, they hear functional medicine, they, they group it together, they, they hear quackery, and they, they're very skeptical of it. So I, I'm curious on your perspective, uh, in terms of, uh, obviously, in every profession, there's people who are good at what they do, and there's people who are bad at what they do. In your mind, for functional medicine, if we're shopping for a functional medicine doctor, are there certain red flags that we should watch out for? Is there is there a reason to be skeptical? 
Um, yeah, you know, as you said, in, in every profession, there's people who are really good at what they do, and there's people who uh, overstate what they can do. Um, I think if you've got someone who guarantees that you're going to get better, um, that's a red flag right there. If you've got um, you know someone who says with certainty that this one thing, you know, heavy metal toxins, mold toxins, gluten, one thing is the answer, then it's like, eh, I'm not so sure that I'm going to work with that person because they've got a, you know, it's a, it's a, a one trick pony. And, uh, you know, that trick may work at the time on some of the people, but, you know, we're all different and we're unique. And it's, you know, someone who's going to take the time and listen to the story. So what we've done is uh, through the Institute for Functional Medicine, where actually I as the chief medical education officer, now I'm a senior advisor and to the CEO. But uh, what we've done is created a, a curriculum uh, that people go through in a certification process and where we test them and making sure they understand. So, you know, looking for what is called an IFM certified practitioner, someone they've got experience, they've got the curriculum, they've gone through it. And that's kind of uh, true, the true functional medicine. And there's, then there's people who don't have that, that um, training, but who are really good and know what they're talking about. So you can find some people outside of that domain who've got a lot of experience over a long period of time, you know, but that's a, a simple first pass that you can do to say like, okay, well, this person's certified. And, you know, for people who are interested, ifm.org find a practitioner, um, you can find someone in your area. We've got about 1,500 people um, trained, 1,800 people trained, and another uh, couple thousand in the queue right now. So one of the things that uh, I wanted to ask you, because I know you have a history working with Genova. Genova, for those who don't know, they do a lot of uh, testing. I know a lot of functional medicine doctors uh, do some specialty testing through them. Would you consider a red flag if they are – doing or are pushing a lot of testing up front, expensive testing? That's an interesting question because, um, you know, my experience and, and so if you talk to doctors over time, when we're early on in our learning curve, we tend to do a lot more testing, try to understand what's going on. Whereas later in our learning curve, we're like, oh, I have a pretty good idea of what's happening. And so like in my case, I don't do a lot of testing right up front when I see people. I spend a couple hours, I listen to their story and have a pretty good idea of where to go. And it's only when things aren't going in the way that I expect they will that I do testing. But I know that early on in my career, I did a lot more testing because I was trying to understand what was going on. And so some people will take more of a shotgun approach and other people will take more of a, of a rifle approach. Mine is more of a rifle approach, you know, of trying to figure out exactly what's going on rather than, than trying to, and I hate to use war and gun metaphors. I guess that's not, I should, I should check that, but um, go for it. I think that there are some people who have, who have a package, you know, and it's like, they're going to give this package to everybody. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I don't find that people fit in packages. I think that every package is unique and different and I want to listen and hear the story. So if I got someone coming to me with depression, you know, it can be related to heavy metals. It can be related to proton pump inhibitors. It can be re related to an inflammatory diet. It can be related to, um, you know, um, what else will we have there? An alteration in the gut microbiome. It can be a pro-inflammatory diet. There's lots of different things. I'm not going to take a one-size-fits-all approach. I'm going to listen to their story and say, I think this is 
This is related to, and I'm usually going to take a food first approach. For instance, if I'm, and I, I found this in practice, it's like, if I'm working with somebody and I feel like the diet is the single most important thing, why would I do a bunch of testing before I change their diet to something that's really going to work? And if I put them on a better diet and then I see where, where things are at, that's useful. But if I, if I do a bunch of testing right up front and I'm changing your diet, by the time I get the results back, everything's already changed. So whether it's in your gut microbiome or in nutritional testing or inflammation. So I like to keep the ball rolling first with helping a person to understand, well, what food and how do I eat that? And we talked about this, I'm sure we'll dive into it. And it's not about being 100% perfect 100% of the time, because it's just not possible. Yeah. You know, so it's like, let's do our best with bringing in a good diet. And let's understand where the, where the triggers really are. Yeah, I like that because we can look for low-hanging fruit uh, up, up front, stuff that's relatively accessible for lifestyle changes and cheap. Because if you change, if you cut out certain foods, like in my case, uh, cutting out gluten and then carefully, you know, tracking that myself. I was tracking, okay, I'm going to have no gluten for these days. I'm going to just gorge on gluten and then see how I feel and all that kind of stuff. Um, that to me was pretty low effort and sustainable because right now I'm on a pretty gluten light diet where I day to day, I don't consume large amounts of gluten. Occasionally I'll have some if we're like doing pizza or whatever. Um, but one of the things I want to ask about is about tracking and for the average person, um, how do we know if we're on track? And, and one of the things that I hear so much about, but I've never heard it well-defined is the sympathetic versus parasympathetic states. And, um, if I, I'll, I'll try to define it for my understanding of it, feel free to correct me, but the sympathetic basically being fight or flight or we're active, we're on, we're going to go, go, go versus parasympathetic rest and digest, let's recover. So play hard, you know, work hard, rest hard. That kind of that's that's my um, mm -hmm. a view of it. And uh, my question for you, could you tell us, like, how do we know what state we're in? How do we balance it? How do we optimize being in each state? So um, <laughs> there's a lot of questions. Oh, yeah, there's a lot, lot to unpack. So the, the end question, the, the end question on the parasympathetic sympathetic we'll go there but I, I do want to come back and be able to talk about well how do you track how do you understand where you're at and how do you determine like you know going into initially with a more aggressive kind of dietary approach you know like being gluten-free and then and then you find over time that as you improve your reserve and increase your resilience you're actually able to tolerate some gluten some of the time and it's not an yep. issue same with me but then I that too. fall back to like you know eating a gluten and not really paying attention all of a sudden or slowly those symptoms will come back and and so you know what the answer is but how do you monitor yourself so we'll, we'll talk about that but let's come to the fight or flight response and and parasympathetic sympathetic tone um you and i talked about this a little bit previously and that is um i'm I'm more data driven in my approach and that being able to really understand where a person is at when I meet someone, you know, I can kind of feel where the person they're they're like over the top, they're, they're wired and they're amped. And there are ways to be able to look at and seeing that using a cortisol awakening response and things of that nature, looking at, at salivary cortisol, which are great 
tools that have been around in the field of psychoneuroimmunology for over 40 years, well-researched, well-understood. And then there's some people who just have, you know, they're agitated, but they've got no energy at all. I am going to work with those patients in different ways. Now that's telling me about what's happening in their hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis, you know, and, and what's going on in terms of overall energy production. And many times it's the brain saying, slow down. You need to slow down. You're pushing too hard. So there's that aspect of it. And then there's the aspect that, as you talked about, which is the sympathetic, parasympathetic tone. So sympathetic, you know, being that, you know, epinephrine, norepinephrine, fight or flight. And that's what happens. So when there's a saber toothed tiger at the door, then our body produces adrenaline, epinephrine in order to be able to have sugar be moving out from the gut out into the periphery, into the muscles so that we can fight or run and everything we can. There's a decrease in the immune system and that's all mediated also through a cortisol, an acute cortisol response. Now, in the setting where we're in traffic, and there's accidents and, and there's sort of stress like coming, coming, coming. And if we relate to it from a sense of, 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 of a hyperactive fight or flight response, then we're going to be in a, a phase of imbalance of, of chronic sympathetic overdrive. And that culturally is an issue. But the answer is not to try to be in the rest and relaxation response all the time. In fact, we want to be able to have the fight or flight response because that's what actually tonifies our system. That's what helps to uh, induce, you know, positive, uh, you know, positive athletic performance and being able to achieve things that we couldn't previously achieve. You know, you see, you see people in, in particular cases of stress, doing things that are like superhuman. It's giving us that property. So we wanna have a balance between sympathetic and parasympathetic. That's really a necessary thing. So then how do you tell where that is? Well, what I've done over time is I've used a, a tool called heart rate variability, HRV. And there's different kinds of tools for HRV. Uh, that one can measure. First, I'll explain it, and then I'll talk about a couple different tools that I use. So heart rate variability is looking at the beat-to-beat -beat variability. How much distance is there in between each heartbeat? Now you think, well, isn't it regular? Like if my heart rate's 48 or 61, then it's regular. That's what it is. But what we see is that there is a variance in between each heart rate, heart, heartbeat, and so if there's a lot of variance, like a spaciousness, that's good. That indicates that there's more parasympathetic tone, rest and response. If it's really tight, that means you're in synthetic overdrive. So think like rigidity versus spaciousness. Well, what you want is, you know, you want some spaciousness, but, uh, you know, as Groucho said, uh, you know, be open-minded, but not so open-minded that your brains fall out. You know, you, you want to be able to have some spaciousness there, but, you know, it's not like I'm just chill all the time and I'm never doing anything. So it's a balance between these two. 
And that, that balance is called coherence. So when you're coherent, you got a really good ability to move into um, a, a stress response when you need to and a chill response on the other side. That's good. That's what, uh, that's what optimal is. That's coherent. And we find that the people who are, have the highest coherence, the highest the best balance between these two are people who live the longest, have the best immune systems, um, don't have uh, diabetes, don't have the same degree of complex chronic disease. And in fact, if they have those things and they learn tools of coherence, they actually improve the outcomes of all those things. So that's pretty cool. Now, uh, say, then you say, well, how do I, how do I know if I'm balanced? I have patients who think because they sit down and they turn on Netflix and they watch, you know, a TV show or a football game that they're actually moving into a, a rest and response, you know, a rest and relaxation response. But, you know, I've watched people watch different TV shows and football games and basketball games, and they're not actually chilling. They're, yeah. they're pretty, they're getting up. really into it. So, um, Right. And, and it's not actually the rest. So, so what are the tools that are used? And so I'll, I'll offer um, four that I've, uh, I've used sort of in the air, in the, in the order that I've learned about them and they've developed. The first one has been around for a long time. It's called heart math and heart math, a little monitor that you clip on your ear that measures your heart rate. Heart and math. You, you said, to sorry to interrupt. Heart math. Just math, like, like a, okay, arth heart arithmetic, math. that kind of stuff. Okay, heart math. Right, heart math. And they've been doing research for like 40 years on this stuff. Great work, really helped to bring it to the fore. And their specific tool is one that allows you to do the biofeedback. It's like, okay, I'm, I'm amped up right now and I'm going to spend five minutes and I'm going to move into a place of, of coherence and balancing and so it's it's an actual biofeedback tool which is great um, and the, one of the things i like about it is it's sort of non-denominational you know i say it like this like well you say well how do i get there well you go to like your your favorite place you go to your safe place you go to your you know your, your special place and and it varies from person to person one person can go to the ocean and feel relaxed another person can feel fear one person can think about their mom and it's like, you know, the greatest thing in the world. Another person thinks about their mom and they're like super stressed. So you find a thing that works for you and you go and you, you just do some breathing exercises to be able to follow that. So that's heart math and that's a biofeedback tool, but that's not telling you about real time what's going on. So now over the past five years, there have been a series of tools that have been developed that are working to say, well, where am I at right now? And how do I determine what things in my life are, are stressors and what things are helping me to be able to relax? And, you know, and it also has been used in performance to be able to determine where am I at in, in that rest and recovery phase? Um, do I need to slow down my workouts today? Or do I, do I have the capacity to really be able to push myself, you know, to new maxes and limits and things of that nature? Um, so the tools that I like are one is this, uh, is this ring that I have right here, this aura ring, and you can kind of see on the inside of it, there's little, um, uh, sensors. 
almost monitors, little little pros, little sensors, thank you, that are looking at my 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 beat-to-beat variability of my heart rate, uh, monitors my sleep. Um, there's other tools that aren't quite as good uh, at this that you know, like say an Apple Watch or a Fitbit are not actually looking at the beat-to-beat variability. Aura is. Um, Whoop does a little bit of it, but not nearly as well as as Aura does. And so it gives me a sense of where I'm at overall, and I can plot, um, you know, day to day, week to week, you know, see how I'm doing overall, and monitors my sleep and monitors exercise. It's not as great a tool of monitoring exercise as let's say a, a Whoop or a Fitbit is. Um, but it's something that's, you know, I don't have to think about it. It's just on my hand and, you know, I charge it every three, four days and it gives me data and helps me to understand. So that's one tool. Another tool is, uh, is something called HRV for training, you know, which just basically is an app on your phone for $7 and you put your finger over the, uh, the camera and it tells you where you're at. And so for people, for your you know, followers who are interested in the concept, it's like, well, that's a pretty simple entry in to say, is there something there? Um, then there's other tools and one that I uh, have been talking to, they're based in Asheville, North Carolina. I guess I'd say that's where I am. Uh, and it's called Elite HRV. And they've been working with elite athletes around the world for about three years and are developing some cool new technology as well. Right now they have a sensor that you put on your finger uh, that you can use first thing in the morning or before and after workouts to be able to see how am I doing you know, how, how much can I push myself at this point in time? And they've got a lot of great science in what they're doing. So these are, I'm, and I'm sure there's more tools out there that I'm not aware of, but these are some that help me to measure. And so I do it for myself. I recommend it to patients. I, I review the data with them. I go over, you know, how do we move into a more balanced state and give them oftentimes, you know, breathing exercises or you know, some physical exercises to be able to help them to be able to deepen into um, coherence, that term coherence that I used. So let me see if I understand. Uh, let, let's, let's go through a hypothetical example. Let's just say I'm listening to this. I don't have the best lifestyle right now. I feel stressed. I want to try to make some changes. I want to try to do meditation. I want to try to get out more, whatever it is, try to relax more, whatever that is for that person. They would try, they would get one of these apps or one of these things to check heart rate variability, aura ring, whatever those are. Um, they would try, like, ch- check, get a baseline for what their um, beat to beat looks like, then try these techniques like meditation, get out more, and then see if that improves. It just kind of track the data and see what's working, what's not working. Is that how you envision the average person would improve um, their? Well, that's, that's, that, that, that hmm. sorry. Um, that's that's one way to do it. Um, another way is to be very specific and volitional. It's like, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna go into a training where I'm gonna work to be able to deepen um, my heart rate variability. I'm gonna start measuring it, and then I'm going to be able to do some uh, specific breathing exercise each morning to help me. Or I'm gonna do yoga. Or I'm gonna go for a walk in nature. Or I'm gonna you know, some intervention that's in mind and then see, okay, how is this working for me? So I'm going to give a personal example uh, that happened for me that, that kind of surprised me. So um, a couple of years ago, I was sick. I was, uh, well, I'll, I'll, I'll 
spill it. So he was diagnosed with stage four cancer, getting chemotherapy, radiation therapy, you know, following nutrition, you know, resting, doing all the right things, acupuncture. And I was tired, wasn't getting outside. It was in the winter time. And I realized I just got to get outside. And I was looking at my heart rate variability on my aura ring and it wasn't very good. Of course, I was going through, you know, daily radiation therapy and, you know, it's kind of in a tough spot. Uh, side note or, you know, uh, spoiler alert, uh, no evidence of disease on uh, a PET scan last week, uh, two years out. So I'm doing well at Congrats. this point in time. Thank you. But what I wanted to highlight was that I started going out into doing just kind of walking in nature and playing, not to get exercise, but just because I had to get outside. And what happened was I started noticing, oh my gosh, my heart rate variability has doubled in the past two weeks since I started doing that. It just started. It, it was, that was the only change that was going on. I was like, that's amazing that for me, that spending time in nature was that helpful for me to be able to do. And I've, I've stopped that and started it again, kind of end of one experiment. And I've seen when I stop it, the heart rate variability goes back down. All other things stay the same. And then when I start it back up again, the heart rate variability goes up. It improves. Um, so it's like, okay, there's something important here for me. You can go into, you know, there's a ton of research on, on what's called Shinrin uh, uh, Yoku or forest bathing for Japanese and anti-cancer effects, immune stimulating effects. You know, there's some, there's some great data on that. Um, but for me, what it, it helped out was in relationship to a um, increased parasympathetic tone and better heart rate variability coherence. Now, again, I'm not saying that's the answer for everybody. That's the experiment. That's the N of one experiment that I did that said, okay, this is what works for me. Because I was already doing meditation. I was already doing, you know, some movement. I was getting good sleep. I was having a good uh, ketogenic uh, dietary program and monitoring my microbiome. And I would look at a lot of different things and they were all, you know, doing pretty well, but I wasn't doing well. So it's just an example of, you know, inviting your, the, the followers, the people out there to say, try it yourself. And like, like I said, something like an elite HRV app or the HRV for training are things that you can get on your smartphone and you can start playing with it yourself without having to buy a, you know, $300 ring. You know, one thing I'm curious about is um, when I think of doing cardio, I think of improving my heart rate. I think of improving my heart rate variability. I was wondering if there's, is there much overlap between someone who just trains and does more cardio with uh, some of the things that you've been talking about? Well, I think you know my my view on the, on the training side, and we can get into this, is that it's a it's really it's a balance. It's not about all cardio. You know, there's the value of high intensity interval training. You know, but not doing too much. You know, I have patient people who come in, and it's like I'm doing it every day. It's like no, I don't want to be doing hit every day. You know, and and the importance of of a strength training and resistance training in addition to cardio. It's the whole package of things that that goes on there. So, you know, what what we can do is we can find, you know, are you overdoing it? And that's one of the things like the uh, the data scientists at Elite HRV 
you know, looking at and working with Olympic athletes, you know, to be able to say, you know, there are days where you need to cut back on what your, on what your training is. And there are days that you can really push it to the edge and be able to see what your limits are. Because as we know, it's like, as we, as we push that limit and we get to a, a new bar, then the next time we're in that optimal state, we can push that even further. We can continue on our improvement uh, overall. And I think that's, you know, from my perspective, that's how we work to optimize our health and well-being. It's not about perfection. It's about listening to the body and when, when can I push it really hard? And when can I, when, when do I need to hold back? And I'm sure because it's, it's happened to you, it's happened to me. You know, there are days where intellectually, I'm like, I'm going for it. And I push myself past limit and I'm wiped out, sometimes wiped out for, you know, several days. It's like, oh God, I just really overdid it. And if I'm listening to my body, it's giving me cues. And if I'm watching my HRV, it's giving me cues about when I, when I'm ready to optimize and when I need to rest. So I'm curious, besides the, the heart rate stuff, what are some example cues that someone should be watching out for? Like, like they just feel stressed, they feel wiped out. Uh, let's use myself as an example because I'm gonna be selfish and just get your opinion. Uh, I'm a I'm a go 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 kind of guy. I'm productive. I'm I can I feel like I can flip the switch and just be like, all right, it's because it, you know I, I I'm working like two jobs, got the kids, doing childcare for them. In the morning, I wake up, I feel rested and ready to wake up, and I just like, all right, let's go work out. I do my exercise, do my fitness streams. I got a, um, you know, I got my day job and then afterward I take care of the kids. I got to be on cause I'm basically single parent because of COVID. I, I, we, my, my wife and I alternate single parents. So now I'm single dad, uh, from like afternoon till bedtime and then I'm doing dinner. I have to focus on them and then we go out and play, bathe them dinner time, all that stuff. And then it's around 9 PM. I'm like, all right, I just go to bed when they go to bed because I, I I'm doing the relaxation the last two hours before bed. I'm doing the kind of, kind of anyway, uh, to a degree, the relaxation of like, it's getting dark where we dim the lights, we do bedtime stories. And so I get tired and sleepy and I, you know, I don't feel wiped out when I go to bed, but I feel ready for bed. And so that's kind of like my day-to-day -day routine. I, I'm wondering for someone like me, I don't feel stressed. I just feel like I'm on most of the day and then I'm just, all right, I'm off. And then it's time to just turn the lights out and just pass out that kind of stuff. Um, so what are some signs for like a type A personality like me that, you know, I should be watching out for? Maybe I'm, maybe I'm fooling myself that I'm really actually stressed all the time. I just don't realize it. What do you think? <laughs> well, one of the, one of the things is you're, you're young and healthy. And so you've got more reserve and what you really want to be paying attention to is looking at that because am I, am I overdoing it? Um, ways to look at, am I overdoing it is that, you know, in the, in the morning, when you get up, you know, are you, are you rocketing right away where your, what's called your cortisol awakening response is like through the roof, you know, you want to have an increase, but you don't want to be like, you know, hitting the ground running as soon as your feet hit the ground in the morning, you know, it's like, okay, so how do I move into a balance where I'm ramping up? And one of the ways you can you can tell about that is at the end of the day, you know, where am I at in the cool down? Am I am I pushing right to the end and then I hit the bed and I'm out 
the so-called sleep latency is one where like if you're falling asleep within one or two minutes of your of, of laying down it means you're exhausted you know now what you're talking about is like no you're actually you know chilling down you're reading a story you're with the kids you know and so then the question becomes what's it like on the days or nights when you're not with the kids you know what's happening are you pushing right up to the end and then and then exhausted stopping or are you actually you know ratcheting down and not having a lot of uh, um, screen stimuli and, and a lot of engagement with the world but you're really you know starting to chill and then you go to bed that's great and the fact that you wake up rested that's a good sign um, you know and so you're probably in a pretty good state and you know, you would look, you could look at you know, what's happening either with HRV when you get up in the morning, that's going to tell you about day-to-day -day variations, the, the cortisol awakening response, which is a salivary test that can be done where you wake up in the morning and you spit in the tube and a half hour later, you spit in the tube and, and an hour after you wake up, you spit in the tube. And that's going to tell you, okay, where are you at in that curve? You know, you want to be ramping up, um, but you don't want to be skyrocketing. You, and it ramps up and then it comes down over the course of the day. That's the normal thing that you should see. And you could look at that, you know, cortisol response or the what's called the diurnal variation, diurnal meaning throughout the day um, variation in your cortisol. And that can be done through a salivary test. Pretty simple, about 150 bucks. Uh, um, I use that more for helping people to see where they're at because you know i think when i meet people i can pretty much say like you're overamped um or you're wiped out um or probably not an issue going on for you when i'm sitting and talking with them and we've, we've spent some time talking and you know, i'd say there's a little risk that you're on the overamped side on the, on the beginning of it but there's a lot of other signs that you know because of the way in which you're working with your health and well-being that you're doing well and that you have reserves what you want to be sure of is that you're not spending those reserves you know at, at unnecessarily um is that yes your question does that, that help that makes a lot of sense. Thank you. Uh, that, that's where I feel like I ride that edge of overproductive, uh, definitely amped up because I just have, I mean, just the way life is right now, I have to get, there's only so many hours in the day. Uh, and unfortunately, an unfortunate reality I had to come to terms with is I really do need seven to nine hours of sleep, closer to nine hours of sleep every night uh, to feel like my best. I I, I had a, a, a short, well, a long story about going on TRT and, and just my testosterone was really shot. And then the at the end of the day, the TRT didn't really do much, didn't change much for me in terms of how I felt. It changed my testosterone numbers to normal, but I didn't feel really better. Um, downstairs felt better, but that didn't, that's not really like, it was to me, it was treating more of the symptom. The one absolute that's really made the difference is forcing myself not just to get seven hours of sleep, but like closer to nine and just sleep early enough with good sleep hygiene, such that I give myself enough time to sleep. If I need to sleep nine hours, I can, I do. And I actually, I've been feeling a lot better. That's probably like the, the single thing that's uh, made a massive difference for me. And, um, go ahead. And so let me just interrupt for a second on that, because I think it's, you know, the way I think about that is that, um, you start off with progesterone and pregnenolone over here. They come from cholesterol. Now they can either go to produce cortisol or they can go across to produce the anabolic hormones, testosterone and DHEA. 
Now we can substitute the testosterone and we can have some, some changes in our symptoms by substituting it. But ultimately the data shows that if you're producing it yourself, you're going to be doing a lot better. And so by focusing on, on sleep for you, you know, it's going to be different for different people, but for fo focusing on sleep for you, that helps to not be pushing into cortisol production. And so you have more endogenous testosterone production, which we find is what the big difference is overall. If we measure people with low DHEA and we just give them DHEA or low testosterone, we just give them testosterone, they feel better for a period of time to six months, but there's no long-term benefit from doing that. You know, and, and, but when you start producing it yourself, there's a long-term benefit from doing that. And for you, you figured out that, oh, it's, it's nine hours of sleep. For some people, it's eight hours of sleep. You know, and many people, there's a minimum amount of sleep and the data would tell us it's at least seven and people who are getting under seven hours of sleep who think they're okay, they're not. Yeah. And the data shows it's the equivalent of like two alcohol drinks of impairment while you're driving of having, you know, chronic sleep deprivation. Yep. Uh, the, speaking of chronic sleep deprivation, it's one of those things where if you're in a hot, stuffy room that's enclosed. And you've been in there for hours. You don't realize it's a hot, stuffy room. Like people say, that's hot and stuffy. Like, that's normal. But then you go out of the room, you get some fresh air, or basically you restore your sleep. And then you go back in, you're like, oh, God, what was I thinking? Being in here, it's like so hot and stuffy. You don't realize it until you actually go out of it. And so one of the things I do with my audience is uh, people who I think are sleep deprived. I do like a 30, I tell, I encourage them to do a 30-day sleep challenge. It's 30 days, gorge on sleep, pay off that sleep debt because it can take weeks to pay it off and just try your best, absolute best sleep hygiene, cut out unnecessary entertainment for just, just 30 days. Just try to gorge on sleep and see if you notice anything different. And for me, that was, I would say life-changing to be honest, but um, I want to open it up for Q and A. It just shows you're listening to your, your body. And I appreciate that in the conversation because you're, you have ways that you're listening to what is my body needing? And, and you're paying attention to it. I think that's the key, the key aspect in all of this. Completely agree. Like just track it, test it. Let's, let's be scientists about this. Let's take a look. Is this making a difference? Um, we're going to open it up for some quick Q and a, we're going to take a question or two, go ahead and queue it up right now. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll pick a question or two to, uh, take exclamation mark Q type out your question. And my bot will grab it. I had one, one more selfish question to ask about, um, the rest and digest parasympathetic, sympathetic state stuff. I have heard two things. One is that rest and digest, right? We should be relaxing, all that kind of stuff. Rest, digest. But at the same time, I've also heard you should not eat and then go take a nap. You should not, it's bad for digestion to eat and then immediately sleep. I've heard of these two things. I have never heard anyone take these two concepts and kind of like clear up this, you know, where's the nuance here? Is, is there any nuance that you could help me understand? Well, first, I'm going to you know talk a little bit about uh, about what that means to rest and digest, and it's slowing down to be able to allow that parasympathetic tone. Parasympathetic tone induces so the vagus nerve, not the Las Vegas nerve, the vagus nerve, which is the wandering nerve that comes down and it affects our heart rate, affects our respiratory rate, but it also affects our gut. It affects our gut in two principal ways. 
three principal ways. The first one is around producing acid so that, that the stomach is actually able to break down proteins effectively. The acid environment allows for the proteins that we eat to be broken down, whether they're animal, vegetable proteins, doesn't matter, uh, that it's necessary to do that. So acid production in the stomach is the first, this first part. Next part in terms of digestion is that it stimulates the pancreas and the gallbladder to release the enzymes and the bile. Uh, there are enzymes that break down carbs called amylases, that break down fats called lipases, and that break down proteins called proteases released from the pancreas. Now that can be altered if you've got some bad food allergies or, in, or inflammation going on, or if you're not in a parasympathetic tone, if you're not resting, and that's where the digestion comes from. So it stimulates those things. And the third aspect that the parasympathetic rest and, and uh, digest comes from is it improves the gut motility. So things start moving through as you eat them. You're digesting them and moving them through. I have patients who come in who have GERD or heartburn. I'm first thinking about like, how are you eating? Are you resting? Are you slowing down or are you eating on the fly? And are, are you eating in front of a screen or are you, you know, eating at business meetings? Um, you know, those things are not going to, those are going to keep you in sympathetic tone and are not going to allow the digestion and motility to occur. So that's the first step. And that's, that's pretty clear and easy. Then there's the piece that, you know, we were told, taught, told, taught when we were little kids, okay, you don't want to go do like, you know, exercise. You don't want to go swimming right after you, you ate, and had lunch, you know, you got to wait an hour. And that's because, you know, we are moving all of our our resources into the gut to allow for that uh, digestion and assimilation of nutrients to be able to occur. So we don't have as much uh, outflow into our, our skeletal muscle um, to be able to activate. So we don't want to do that. But there is a balance point because what we find that when we go into um, eating and then taking a nap immediately thereafter, um, that that is, is one that doesn't allow us to be able to assimilate, especially the proteins in an effective way. You know, we're, we're ingesting something, but now we need to begin to incorporate them. And if we're not doing that, that's why taking a walk or doing something in that nature, which is still relaxing, is the best thing to be able to do rather than simply taking a nap. Um, that said, taking a nap is probably better than going out and, you know, doing some HIIT exercise or, or being overly, um, overly active right after eating. So it, there's a continuum there. Okay. That's good to know. That actually answers it perfectly. Thank you. So one of our questions, speaking of GERD, Judge 80 asks, is GERD reversible? Absolutely. Now, GERD, so gastroesophageal reflux disease. Now, I, I love it. You know, it's a disease. No, it's not actually a disease. You know, it's sort of the way Western medicine labels a symptom as a disease. You know, when you have heartburn, when you have reflux that's going on, it can relate to an inadequate closing of the gastroesophageal sphincter let me stand up here so it's right in that area and that can be that can stay open relatively from certain foods burgers chocolate um 
um, those things are going to um, keep that not closing effectively. And so the acid that's in the stomach is going to just start spilling up into the swallowing tube, into the esophagus, and you're going to have symptoms of heartburn. Now, the answer is not take a proton pump inhibitor, a PPI, a purple pill, and, you know, Nexium and, and um, Prilosec and those kinds of things, because that's just saying, okay, stop acid production. But you heard me say earlier, we, you need acid production to be able to activate the enzymes to break down protein. You know, so symptomatically, we've got a tool that works. It stops the acid production and oftentimes, not always, oftentimes stops the symptoms, but it's not actually getting at the root of the problem. So when I'm looking at someone with GERD, I'm thinking about, okay, what's happening with the foods that you're eating? Are there specific foods that are causing problems? Some people will have issues with certain kinds of acidic foods or tomatoes or nightshade vegetables. Some people will have problems with those sweets and things like that that keep it open. Like begin to identify what are the foods that I'm eating that actually tend to cause it to worsen. And you would work to eliminate those for a period of time, like about uh, um, three to four weeks, you know, and then add them back and see, is it still causing a problem? Now, where I focus is, is on that and the, and the portion size, you know, the, the portion size for Americans used to be an eight inch plate. Now it's a 12 inch plate. You know, and if, like, if you eat too much food, you're going to have problems being able to get it all mobilized. Um, but then that comes to that third part that I mentioned earlier, and that is about motility of the gut and how are things working? And are you in a, a state of parasympathetic tone that's allowing movement to be able to occur? You know, I find a lot of times that people, especially the group of people who have reflux or heartburn, and have constipation, like big red flag, motility issues. We've got to help get things moving through and get the what's called the migratory motor complex. The, there's a different rhythm that the colon and the small intestine has. You've got to get that working so that motility is happening in a good way. So the question is, is it reversible? Absolutely. No. Big caution for the people out there who are taking a proton pump inhibitor. You know, back when I was in medical school, we had uh, the uh, antihistamines and H2 blockers, Tagamet and stuff like that, that were early things that would be able to help with heartburn. But then they developed these uh, proton pump inhibitors. The problem with the proton pump, proton pump inhibitors is that they're, you know, they were approved for 12 week period of time. I got patients who've been on them for 20 years, you know, so if, you, My dad if you're too. on something... Yeah, if you're on something for that long and you're not producing acid, you're gonna have some downstream consequences because you're not breaking down your proteins. And, and that not breaking down of the proteins can lead to an increase in uh, certain kinds of bacterial growth, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, uh, so-called SIBO. I'm sure we'll have some questions that can, can happen from that proton pump inhibitor because you're basically not breaking down the proteins and so you're sending them downstream and you end up feeding the bacteria instead of feeding yourself. So the reason I'm perseverating on this for a moment is that because, so there's a lot of good reasons why you don't wanna be on that proton pump inhibitor, but when you stop, there is an automatic rebound of increased acid production. 
he's kind of like a devious uh, thing from the from the drug manufacturers, and it's not their fault. It's just what happens with it. And so, if you stop at cold turkey, your symptoms are going to get really bad the very next day. So you can't just stop the turkey. Now, if you're taking it every once in a while, it's probably not going to be a problem. But if you're taking it every day and you've been taking it every day for a, you know six months or more, then you really need to do a taper on it. And that taper is a slow taper. I like how my patients taper over an eight week period of time, doing some dietary change, looking at those kinds of uh, nightshades, acidic foods, and uh, the sweets that are causing problems and slowly, slowly taper the dose of the proton pump inhibitor every two weeks. And I'm able to get people off, you know, most of the time and, uh, and, still not have GERD symptoms. And that, so is it reversible? Absolutely. Okay, great answer. Thank you. Uh, you know, some people though, they, they're, they're actually one of my questions I want to ask about motivation. Some people may not be motivated to make these kinds of changes. They'd rather just take the pill. Uh, they're not motivated to make the changes, dietary changes, because they want to enjoy their coffee or nightshades or alcohol or whatever it is that is actually that might be contributing to the GERD. They don't want to change. They want to keep taking the pill. Um, for people who need that motivation, how do you get through to them? Or is there, there is no getting through? <laughs> well, you know, one of the things when I was in medical school, I was really interested in prevention. And what I found is that people, most people don't want to do uh, the positive things on prevention, just be a good thing. They wait until they start having symptoms and then they'll say, oh gosh, maybe I should do something about it. So this small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, IBS, uh, other kinds of uh, nutritional deficiencies can all occur from the proton pump inhibitors. And you may have to wait and just say, hey, there's some long-term consequences of this. Um, and we can go into the, the gastroenterology peer reviewed literature. And it's like, yeah, there's a lot of long-term consequences of this, you know, so beware, you know, and, and that's all you can do. That's all I can do is buyer beware. There's some, there's some things to look at when you're ready, come on back. I can help you. Yeah. There is no free lunch. Uh, the next question is from, and then we'll resume the, uh, discussion, Decipher Zero uh, diagnosed with severe obstructive sleep apnea last year. Before CPAP, I was having trouble losing weight, regardless of how much I worked out or my diet was. He's lost 40 pounds since being on a CPAP therapy. Congrats. Uh, is it possible to eventually get to a point where I won't need the CPAP? So, yes, the answer is yes. I mean, I, we find this with almost any kind of chronic disease. The ability to be able to move back to health and well-being is there. You know, some of it depends upon how far, how much damage has been done in the process. You know, but the fact that you know you've lost forty pounds is great because it's going to decrease some of the um, the impact of what's going on in your neck area. But there are different kinds of sleep apnea. Uh, there's central obstructive sleep apnea, which is really happening in the, in the brain, in the cortical regions. And then there are um, more kind of, uh, structural obstructive sleep apnea things, uh, in, including with the, uh, the nasopharynx and the oropharynx where things are closed down. So when we see people who are overweight or who are snoring, and uh, I like to use a simple um, 
tool on the on the smartphone with my patients called a uh, called Snorla. You know where it's like it's a free app. It might be four dollars. What's it called again? Download it and you just punch it. Snore Lab. Snore like Lab. Snoring. Okay. Yep. Snore Lab. And you just um, you know punch it when you go to bed, and it starts recording if you're snoring. It, it waits for snoring, and then it starts recording it, and then it records it, and then you can see is there any stopping of breathing that's happening that's associated with the snoring, which is obstructive sleep apnea. Now, what's happened with Zephyr and other people is that if you have obstructive sleep apnea, your oxygen levels in your brain are going down and we, and you have disrupted sleep. And we talked earlier about sleep, but when you have disrupted sleep, it causes an increase in inflammation and causes an increase in insulin resistance. So insulin resistance means that when the body's producing insulin, um, which is the key to help glucose enter into the cells, the body becomes resistant. It's, a, it's like saying, hey, your key's not working. Your key's rusty. It's not opening the gates. And so the glucose, which is circulating, stays in the body, stays in the bloodstream. And you know, so that's kind of like a pre-diabetic state. Now we see increases that feeds further inflammation, that feeds hypertension, that feeds, feeds visceral weight gain, that feeds uh, cardiovascular diseases and a lot of other things. So the, the, the obstructive sleep apnea can be an entry point for worsening all of those things. And it's a feed forward process because if you start being insulin resistant and you're gaining weight, even though you're eating the same kinds of foods, you're gaining more weight um, and you're gaining more visceral fat, um, not just body fat, but visceral fat. Now you're entering into a much higher risk. So, you know, working with the um, sleep app using CPAP uh, in this case, you know, or frankly, whatever tool is going to help is a, an important component to be able to do. And once you get down to not having that same degree of insulin resistance, you don't have that same degree of obstruction of sleep, your sleep cycles are better. Uh, you're doing the things that you said in, in terms of, you know, being able to determine what is, uh, what are my actual sleep needs uh, and working with that. And then of course, you know, working with diet, because if you're eating a standard American or basic American sad or bad diet that tends to be pro-inflammatory with, you know, you know, uh, an egg muffin for breakfast and a Big Mac for lunch and a double Whopper with bacon for dinner, you know, that's going to be pro-inflammatory. Um, you know, so you, you're going to have to work on that aspect of it as well. But the question was, can obstructive sleep apnea be reversed? Absolutely. And for many people, they need to use something like CPAP or something to help regulate it to be to be the accelerator of going there. Not everyone needs that, you know, but for some people, as, as we hear with, uh, with Zephyr, you know, with 40 pound weight loss, absolutely helpful being a big trigger to be able to do that. Um, and I'll just say as a side and be sure to clean your CPAP machine regularly. <laughs> I could imagine. All right, great. Thank you. Um, so let's, let's uh, get back to the other discussion topics today uh, i want to talk about gut health poop health in particular uh we talk about we hear people talk about about poop and just gut health that it should be good um but to uh, you know 
with the av avoiding expensive testing, uh, assuming we don't have all the money in the world, I'm just curious, what are some good heuristics or rules of thumb to know that we're on the right track or wrong track? Is there something in our poop that we should just look for, you know? Sure. So, um, you know, go back to Ayurvedic medicine, one to two bowel movements a day. If you're having more than that, it's probably a problem. Being less than one a day, it's probably a problem. And you need to work on that. Looking at, at what the what the stool is, you know, what you want is you want a, a, a stool generally that floats. That's going to indicate that you've got a good amount of fiber in your diet. Although floating is not a necessary thing. You want the color to be a brown color and you want it to be formed so that when it goes in the toilet, it stays formed. You don't want soft serve ice cream. You don't want liquid, obviously. And you don't want hard little pellets you know, that are going to be an indication of, of not getting adequate hydration. You know, so you can look at the stool and you can look at the, the frequency of bowel movements and, and be doing pretty good. And then you're, you're asking, is there any abdominal pain? Are there any other symptoms that are going on? You know, the, the gut only has a couple different ways in which it can manifest symptoms. You know, I can have reflux, I can have diarrhea, I can have constipation, I can have pain. And so you're listening to those and you're looking at what the frequency of your bowel movement is. And that's going to be a great first start. You don't need to do a $300 microbiome test to figure out that you're doing okay. Now, if you have problems and you're working with your diet and you're not getting better and you're continuing to have severe constipation um, or, or significant diarrhea or significant pain, then you may want to do something that's going to say, well, let me figure out what's going on underneath. And uh, if you, if I, if I can, I'm just going to jump in under the hood and say, and, you know, underneath the way in which from a functional medicine standpoint, we talk about uh, uh, a terminology that we say, dig in and dig in is Yum. looking at, they just, how's that working? Well, you know, <laughs> how's that working? Uh, how's digestion working? How is intestinal permeability? Is there a leakiness in the gut? How is the gut microbiome? You know that I, I could talk about the gut microbiome for the rest of the day into the night, and then we would sleep for eight or nine hours, and we could talk about it again for all day tomorrow. There's just so much fascinating information of what we're learning there. Um, and you can evaluate where that's at um, with some older tools or newer tools. If we wanna talk about that, I'm glad to jump in. But then we also look at what's happening with the immune system. Is there any inflammation? And what's happening with what is called the enteric, the gut nervous system. And that, and that is the gut brain microbiome axis where the information from your microbiome is actually feeding up into your brain and it affects your gut feelings. It affects your emotions. It affects uh, how you're feeling and moving in the world. Um, I know we're about to get into some nitty gritty details here. So if you're, if you're eating food right now, this may not be the best, uh, <laughs> you might want to pause it for the next minute, <laughs> but I want to, I want to actually focus in on some of the poop descriptions that you had. Cause I, I there's, there's still some, um, nuance here that I haven't heard clearly explained. I just want to double check a couple of things with you. Uh, having a single nice, well-formed log versus multiple smaller logs, as long as they're well-formed, is that okay? 
Yeah, that's that's okay. Um, that has more to do with motility. So having a single uh, a single um, turd, a single yeah. log uh, <laughs> versus several several well formed logs. Um, you know, it, it that has to do with how your motility is doing at the time that you have a bowel movement. You encourage people to you know not try to force it. And not to spend a ton of time on the toilet, just to allow whatever comes out to, to come out um, and do it in that way. So is that? Yeah, actually, speaking of that, so more detail? As, no, no, I, I do want to get in more detail because um, as a parent, sometimes I just need a, you know, I want a break and I want to just, you know, escape, <laughs> just escape on the toilet and read my phone and just kind of like zone out for a few minutes. And it's easy, especially with our phones, to just get distracted and, and like, oh, 10 minutes pop, passed by. And so um, while I'm on the toilet, I noticed kind of what you're saying. There's these two phases of in the beginning, in like two minutes, I could just be done. And I feel like I got like 80% of it out. But it's like this last 20% that I feel like if I spend another 10 minutes there, I could get it all out. And that is not as well formed. It is not the same formation as the first couple of turds that came out. And so... Uh, I'm wondering, is that what you're talking about in terms of I really should just, you know, stop when I like the 80-20 rule, like 80% is out. I feel good enough. Let's just not spend forever there and let the other stuff form in my gut a little bit more. Yes. Yeah, because the water will be absorbed. So like, you know, when you're doing that and you and you need time away from your kids, okay, you know, um, get up, close the lid, put your pants back on. You can sit back down on the toilet. You'll be fine. You know, but you're the risk the risk is twofold. One is that you're going to actually lead to some involuntary movements, which is stimulate or which is um, the what's called Valsalva, you know, you're bearing down. And as you bear down, that's going to cause the veins in the around the rectum to begin to expand. And the, there's a high risk of hemorrhoid in, in doing that. And so you want to avoid that. You don't want to be bearing down. Um, you know, we also find that the actual um, biomechanics of the way in which toilets are set up are not very good because, you know, it, we, we are made to squat uh, to have a bowel movement because it straightens out the angle of the, of the rectum versus when we're sitting on the toilet, it's at a little bit of an angle. And so we have to bear down a little bit to do that. So we don't want to spend a lot of time bearing down some other consequences. I got one of those squatty potty and things then, to like raise your feet off the ground a little bit. But, but let's just uh -huh. say we're using that and we're just Good. relaxed. Like I'm not actually like, I'm not actually forcing anything. I'm just, just relaxing. And then, you know, if I wait 10 minutes, then more comes out. It's not well formed. Is that still as bad? And so it's not as bad, but you know what you're, what you're describing, and it's usually in the six to eight minute time frame. that's the rhythm of the major migratory motor complex of the migratory motor complex. That is what a normal rhythm of, of the waves that move through the intestine are. And so, you know, to me, go be done. You know, if another wave comes back and there's enough stool in there that it needs to needs to happen again, that's perfectly fine. And what you're doing by just sitting there for a few minutes is is not a major problem, um, but it does have some potential risk if you're bearing down. You know, so I don't want I don't want to provide that as like everyone should do that. I think you're better off if you just evacuate what you have. And then if you have more to get rid of at a later point in time, um, then you will like having a second bowel movement a day, is not a problem. 
you know, having multiple you know, patients who have three, four bowel movements a day, um, that's a problem. Um, so yeah. we have to work with, um, with their patterns and behavior around that. Yeah. One thing I've noticed, you know, I, I try to be, you know, thoughtful about my, my patterns, behaviors, why am I doing certain things? What, what's the reaction? And I, I think that over the past, I want to say a year or two, especially with COVID and just needing more, uh, mental breaks, I, I am on most of the day is, um, I think I, I, I call it boredom poops. Like I'm just trying to you know it's like let myself be bored and, and just kind of let the mind wander which in real real talk meditation like five minutes meditation probably way better spent than the extra five ten minutes on my on, my, uh, on the toilet on the, on the phone but um but i i thank you for your thoughts on that that makes uh, a lot of sense um one extra discussion on this about the, the the formation of the stool um is there much thought or difference between a um hard not super hard dry like play-doh but just like a smoother you know slightly firmer stool versus softer fuzzier looking ones they're both formed they hold their shape but but the the surface seems softer and fuzzier uh, as opposed to like the, the harder play-doh again i'm not i'm not talking about the super hard dry dehydrated poop I'm talking about just you know you know i'm talking about something more yeah. in the middle well, I, I do, but you're really talking more about hydration status at this point in time. And so when, when you see that there's um, a, not a need to pull all the water out of the stool, you know, in the severe cases, like the, you know, the, the, the Play-Doh that's been dried for outside for five days, you don't want that, you know, so you want it to be malleable and Play-Doh's really a good example. Uh, of being able to do that. But, you know, if it's a little bit softer, you know, then one, you should see, is there any, are there any foods that are causing it? Because you can have like a long string stool that's pretty soft, still stays, it still holds its shape, but that's actually in, in the um, overall uh, um, Bristol stool index, you know, that's, that's moving towards the context of maybe there's a little bit something that is causing an overstimulation uh, of the bottles to go on. So you really want it to be in, in formed and not that kind of, as you said, soft on the edges, that's optimal. Okay. So when I say soft, have it be soft. when I say soft on the edges, I mean, it's, it's definitely holding its shape. But it just has like a, a fuzzy-ish look to it. But it's not gonna like it's it's not gonna like crumble into sawdust if that makes sense. Like what's what we're talking about is like does the surface matter that much if it's like you know a little soft fuzzy versus like more of a, a you know smooth sausage? Well, again, it's indicating that your colon is not needing to accept the water that's in it. That's what the colon job is. Um, but it does highlight that there's probably something that acting to push it through a little more quickly. You know, if it were sitting in the colon for a day, it, it would be absorbed and you wouldn't have soft fuzziness around the edges. So is there something that is stimulating or pushing the movement to occur? You know, for instance, there are some things like uh, magnesium supplements uh, that will do that. Vitamin C supplements uh, can do that. They can kind of push things through. 
we use them therapeutically for people who are constipated, but for people who are not constipated, you know, I'd rather not have them take that kind of magnesium, for example, magnesium citrate, and so that they had a, a firmer stool, not one that is quote unquote soft and fuzzy on the outside. Actually, it's funny you mentioned that because now that I think about it, um, the the poops that I have that are like that that are like softer and fuzzier, that's usually going to be happening for me because of one of two things. So my, my, my mind, my body are just so connected. They know this is going to happen. It's usually the workout. In the morning, I do my workout stream. I have to be on. It's like I'm performing basically. And um, a lot of times I take pre-workout, which has caffeine in it. But even if I, which caffeine definitely stimulates me down there. But even if I don't take the caffeine, mm-hmm. um, just knowing that I'm going to work out and I'm going to be on stream, like a performance type thing, my body knows just evacuate, let's just empty everything, regardless of the formation. Um, I would say it's diarrhea like, but but uh mm-hmm. it's to the point mm-hmm. where like on the weekend when I know I'm not gonna work out and I know I'm not gonna be like performing, if you will, um, uh, the poop quality is actually like I would say top notch. It's like a lot smoother, a lot cleaner. Um uh, the fact that I'm you know, it seems like my body and mind are in connected with each other and that they know I need to be on, so I'm just gonna evacuate before my my physical performance of working out. Is that a good thing? Does that make it okay in this context? <laughs> um, I'm not sure I can talk about whether it's okay or not. I mean, it's a it's an adaptive response, and I'm sure some of it is caffeine because caffeine is certainly going to have that kind of effect overall. Um, but you said it's happening even without caffeine, so that that seems to me that's that's more of of an activation that's going on, and I, I've seen that, and you know, I, I relate to it you know, where, you know, before I go speak, before I go perform, that there may be an evacuation that occurs just to be able to, to get things out of there. So that's a common response, you know, but it, it's not, uh, you know, as long as you're not having diarrhea um, and you're not losing nutrients and you're not, and, you're, and your fluid status is okay, it shouldn't be a problem. Um, but if, if it's something that is happening all the time, and then I'd say, well, gosh, let's see what's going on with your nutrient status and let's see what's going on with your hydration status and look at, you know, something like a bioimpedance analysis where we're looking at your intracellular water and your electrolytes and seeing, okay, are those things in balance? Um, and there's ways to be able to look at and determine, is it an issue for you at this point in time? A BIA would be a simple way to be able to do that. Okay, I'll keep that in mind. Thank you. I really love this discussion because I never hear it talked about in this much detail. Because a lot of times, like when I look up gut health stuff, is so generic. They never get into like the fuzzy, <laughs> the yummy details. But moving on from the uh, the the drawings and, and the visuals, uh, one question actually that just came up in chat was: in this, I've wondered myself: is there such a thing as too much fiber, insoluble versus soluble? And I'll, I'll give a a contextual um, explanation of this. I have noticed personally that. There, I have a limit. I know, I know, like fiber gets talked about in the media, like it's such a good thing, eat more and more fiber. But I've noticed there is a dose dependent response where too much for me does lead to diarrhea, does lead to sawdust, whether it's too much Cheerios, whether it's too much just I gorge on vegetables, lots and lots of vegetables. I notice there is a th- certain threshold where I cross it and it just it's not good the next day, it's not clean. Well, uh, there's not a whole lot of uh, fiber in Cheerios, so let's <laughs> not go okay. there. But uh, you know, you're you're making an important distinction um, around soluble and insoluble fiber. First of all, so soluble fiber, which you know we're going to see in various kinds of prebiotics, 
you know, from acacia root and psyllium and things like that. That's actually going to help seed and, or I should say, feed uh, the gut bacteria. And so it will cause changes in the microbiome, um, which are usually beneficial, but depending upon which soluble fiber you're using and what the overall state of your, of your gut microbiome is, you can actually overdo or misdo the kinds of soluble fiber and, and cause an imbalance of growth to be able to occur. So once you, when you're looking at that, I want you to kind of stratify out what's happening with soluble fiber, which is acting as a prebiotic and causing changes in the creation of short chain fatty acids and other kind of metabolites that are occurring in my gut versus insoluble fiber. That's going to be like vegetable fiber, things that you're not able to digest and that, and that pass through, they add the bulk to, to your stool. Now, on the, on the insoluble fiber side and that bulk to the stool, you know, there's a point where too much bulk can actually affect that migratory motor complex. And we can see some people who, who are, have too much bulk and especially if they're dehydrated, you know, they're going to dry things out and have big, big amounts, you know, FOS, FOS can stand for fructo oligosaccharides, which is a kind of, um, of prebiotic, or it can stand in, in medical terms for full of shit, um, <laughs> you know, where we can see that, that people, you know, we, they have abdominal pain, they're constipated. And we look at a, uh, what's called a, a KUB or a flat plate of the abdomen. And it's like, oh yeah, those bowels are filled with stool. Um, and, they're not able to evacuate. That's too much fiber. Now, what you want to do is you want to be, you know, kind of increasing up on the fiber ladder to be able to do that. You're, we're, you're right. More fiber is better. And we find that people who are able to take, you know, 35, 40 grams of fiber a day are going to be healthier in terms of their gut health and their overall health with decreases in diabetes and insulin resistance resistance and prediabetes and metabolic syndrome and all those kinds of things. But you can't just start taking 35 to 40 grams of protein a day. The, the average American oh, you mean fiber? 15 grams of protein of fiber. Did I, what did I say? You said protein. That's okay. Um, <laughs> fiber. Yeah, I meant fiber. Um, yeah, Plus so enough. about 15 grams of fiber a day. Now, a paleolithic diet, or if we go to, you know, the hunter gatherers in Africa, it's like 120 grams of fiber a day. Um, and we see, you know, much larger amounts of stool that are there and differences in their microbiome, you know, but we know that, you know, in the 35, 40 grams, we're going to get a ton of the benefits uh, of fiber. And if you're having issues with fiber, you notice this dose dependent process, take a look at, is it the soluble fiber or is it the insoluble fiber? And then, you know, if you, I'm going to say binge on, you know, eating a whole bunch of vegetables all at once, and that's very different than what you usually eat, then you're going to have a significant increase in your insoluble fiber and your gut's going to be like, oh, I'm kind of extended right now. And, and I need things through. If you've got a good rhythm, that's great. But if you have an rhythm that's going on in your migratory motor complex because of sympathetic overdrive, then you, you can actually precipitate a problem. And that problem is a big problem. It's a pain problem. It's constipation, um, but you can work with it and you can use agents like um, vitamin C and magnesium citrate to kind of push things through 
uh, if you need to. Actually, I wanted to zero in on the insoluble fiber thing because I have this burning question that I've I've not heard a good answer for, which is uh, about insoluble fiber and just the bulk of vegetables. Let me give a specific example. Uh, 100 grams of broccoli, for example, if we look at the 100 grams, what's in there? It's about 10 grams of macros where it's like, you know, six grams carbs, three grams protein around there. So about 10 grams of that. So 10% is actual macros, macronutrients. And then the other 90% of that, the other 90 grams, what is that? Because I know some of it's water, obviously some of it's water, but a lot of it is, in my mind, I'm thinking a lot of that's insoluble fiber because that's just vegetable bulk that we cannot digest. However, when I look at the grams of fiber on it, out of those 6.6 grams of carbs, 2.6 grams is fiber. So, and I know they they usually further subdivide that to soluble versus insoluble, but in my head, I'm thinking like that other 90 grams, a lot of that is insoluble fiber, but it's just not the definition that I hear. So I wanted to hear your take on all that. Well, I've never thought about it that way. And you're, you're teaching me. It's a great question, but I've just never thought of it that way. So I would just go and you know, Google like, you know, how many grams of fiber are in uh, 100 grams of broccoli and, uh, and be able to look at it that way. A lot of it's, a lot of it's water weight. Um, and and I don't know what the rest of it is. That's a great question. But in general, is it safe to say that we could uh, assume that basically that vegetable matter of cellulose and whatnot that we just we cannot extract nutrients out of? That's basically insoluble fiber. Is that bulk that's going to be pushing stuff through? Yes. Okay. Yes. To answer your question specifically, and then you you also raised piece there where you're where you're looking at the carbs uh, versus the net carbs. You know where you're subtracting out what the actual fiber is and you know we can get into a conversation about net carbs as it relates to uh, ketosis and ketogenic diets and and approaches there um, and that's really where I, I think about net carbs more not so much on the what is the actual fiber content yeah um, that's present okay and you know there's a um, there's a couple of tools like uh, chronometer. I like chronometer as a tool for being able to plug in information. Uh, I love that tool. Map, uh, that that tells me about what the what the nutrients are. You know what the fiber content is. Uh, I think it's a it's a it's a super tool to be able to use. Absolutely. So uh, the next topic I want to get onto is just you know the nuance in the diet. Uh, achieving perfection is so difficult in so many of these functional medicine discussions what i always hear described it just sounds like the perfect diet that i don't know who's gonna be able to achieve like this you know, this day and age the perfect diet because i i i try to live by the 80 20 rule of the, the good enough let's just get in there and let's do most of the things good but let's give some flexibility to still have some junk to go out to a wedding enjoy or whatever serve just enjoy it you know like get together with friends, just enjoy it, that kind of stuff. So uh, I, I was curious in terms of if we are living a pretty active, healthy life, like I'm, I'm an active, healthy guy. I, you know, exercise, work out. I, I try to find that balance of, of, of uh, still rest and recover, all that kind of stuff. Um, for the active, healthy crowd, uh, is there an increase in tolerance to junk and just having a little bit of, you know, straying away from perfection? Is there increased intolerance to junk? Well, there's a couple layers to the, the question here. And so, and you and I have talked about this a little bit, but let me just um, go into it for a, for a while. You know, first of all, um, 
I mentioned the other day, uh, Henrik Ibsen, the, the playwright who said, you know, everything in moderation, including moderation, you know, which I think is important. It's like, we've got to find balance in our life. And, and it's not about being perfect. Um, because if it is, none of us are going to get there. And so how do we find ways to be able to move in the world, you know, that creates balance. Now, for some people who are really sick, you know, small changes in their uh, macronutrient intake, you know, can have some significant symptoms uh, that will that will develop from there. And we find that the that the diet overall, which is really quite out of balance uh, for most Americans at this point in time, you know, like well, what is the right diet? There is no one right diet for everybody, and we can look at. At low carb diets, we can, you know, ketogenic diets, uh, Mediterranean diets, uh, low fat diets, you know, and one of the things you see when you look at the research that's done on this and, and Christopher Gardner at Stanford is great in terms of the research that he's done and the way that he thinks about it and talks about it is that, you know, most of these dots when they get applied in, in research are basically whole foods diets. You know, they're removing simple sugars and they're removing processed foods and people do better on them. And so then what is the one right diet for you at, at, at one point in time? There's therapeutic diets. So like when I'm getting, uh, you know, chemotherapy or dealing with insulin resistance, which I had a ketogenic diet, it was a great diet to be able to take, you know, but it's not something that I want or need to be able to hold to for a long period of time because we find that ketogenic diets tend to decrease the diversity in the gut microbiome not something that we want to have. So that therapeutic diet is useful for that specific indication. And by and large, we want to get back to a diet that's going to, you know, have uh, whole foods that are not processed. Now, that being said, you know, you, if you're, if you're doing well and, and you, you have some balance in your diet and you go to a birthday, you know, or you're celebrating something that's going on and, and, or, you know, having a day a week where it's like, okay, you know, Sunday is my, you know, eat anything day. And, and you do that. And then the thing is, see how you feel with that, right? And if you feel okay with that, it's like, okay, I have some balance. Um, I'm doing well. I'm not going to keep doing that every day, but I'm going to, you know, I feel like I've got some reserves and things are doing well. Now that's different than, than the subset of patients I see who are sick and when they, they make that one transgression and they start feeling crappy, um, then it's like, okay, well, you don't have the reserves yet to be able to do that. Once, once you're back into sufficient balance, you're going to be able to eat other foods. So, you know, as I was laughing, as you were saying, because it's like, I've had, you know, dinners and meals with, you know, Jeff Bland and Mark Hyman and Terry Walls and many others. And it's like, they're not perfect in what they're <laughs> eating all the time by and large, you know, like I've eaten many, many meals with Mark and, you know, we were actually, we, we, you know, shared an apartment in, at the Cleveland clinic and, uh, you know, by and large, he's eating really well, but then once in a while he doesn't. And it's not, you know, there's not a focus on trying to be perfect all the time. It's, it's finding what that balance is. Now you asked another aspect of the question and, and, you know, I've seen this, I've seen it personally, but that is people who are not eating a, a great diet and then they start to eat um, a whole foods diet and let's call it a, a Mediterranean diet for 
just to pick an example, and they're eating a good whole food Mediterranean diet. And then they go and they have, you know, donuts and a piece of cake and they feel terrible. And it's like, wow, I didn't feel terrible before when I had this, what did you do to me? You know, and it's like, what's the body saying, Hey, this isn't what make me feel good. And so it's giving you instantaneous feedback that when you clean up the system and make it more efficient, it's able to see the inefficiencies much more clearly than when it's in a state of, of a veiled state of cloudiness all the time where it's not able to really differentiate, you know, the, the good from the bad. And, you know, we, I do see that commonly. Um, some patients don't like that. They say, well, it's not, it's not fair that you did that. But what I have found is that as, as we work together over time and they get to that point of balance, then having the, the day off um, works just fine. And it, it doesn't create long-term consequences for them. And this is where the, you need that. You got to have a pop-off valve to be able to, because what, what happens for some patients sadly, is that they, they can't maintain it. They have this view of perfection and then they eat something that is not on the plan and maybe they enjoy the taste. And, and you know, I, I loved hearing your, your view of how you introduce foods and, and the various taste qualities to them, you know, give the, give the nutrients first and give the, the super, uh, you know, high palatable taste um, things last, but, you know, they do that and they're like, oh, wow, I really like this. And so now I'm going to eat, you know, the whole pint of Ben and Jerry's ice cream. And since I'm doing that, I may as well have, you know, a chocolate croissant on top of it. And well, you know, I guess I'm going to order pizza, you know, for dinner with the, uh, you know, I mean, you see how it goes and all of a sudden they're down a pathway where their attempt to perfection has led them to not be able to have balance at all, right? And so balance, perfection's not balance. So finding what that balance point is for you. And again, coming back to, well, what is the diet that's best for you? What is the food plan that's best for you? I'm gonna just come and say like whole foods, you know, those are, that's the most important thing to be able to do as the base approach to food. And then you'll have other kinds of things you know, now again, to bring other diversity and balance and joy to your life and your, and your palate. And one thing I commonly say, and I was having this conversation with a, a cancer patient yesterday, and, you know, we're going to have her use a ketogenic diet in, in the approach. But the idea was, we're not trying to remove all sweetness from your life. If you are, are if we're moving in a way and you feel like, gosh, you've taken away Dr. You know, every sweet thing in my life, that's not going to be sustainable. I know that. So we've got to find ways to find balance with them. I love that the finding the balance with everything. But one of the one of the things that I'll hear, and this may be kind of just a speculative hypothetical discussion we're about to get into, but they'll you'll I hear some of the the perfectionist crowd. They'll say stuff like "just you wait," and where like they look at let's let's talk about an example of um. Olympians or not just Olympians, but just a high performance athletes like, you know, people who are doing marathons, people who are doing um, these long cardio um, uh, ventures, these uh, a lot of weightlifting, CrossFit, something like that. You are doing so much 
high performance activity for a while. And we see that these athletes, they are consuming simple sugars. They're consuming Gatorade. They're consuming what a lot of perfectionists would call junk. And so I'm wondering uh, in that context, is it just fine for them because they actually need the simple sugars or are they setting themselves up for long-term issues? Because we hear about the Michael Phelps eating 10,000 calories at McDonald's a day in the Olympics. But what about 20 years from now? In your experience, or just hypothetically, what are your thoughts on what's going to on this this uh, situation? Um, well, there are a couple of different aspects there. The first one is in relationship to you know the amount of carbs that are needed. Just like with growing kids, they they need the carbs. You're not going to put them on a, a, a low fat diet. You're not going to put them on a, on a ketogenic diet. They need the, the carbs there in order to be able to have energy. And so we find with uh, high level athletes or, you know, if I'm going out on a, on a century ride, you know, hundred mile ride, it's like, I'm going to need some carbs during that time. Um, because my body is going to need some fuel. I do really well on a ketogenic approach, you know, but I am going to need some carbs to be able to finish that hundred miles. Um, and so, you know, I'm, I'm focused on, on being able to do that because I'm not going to be, you know, taking a keto cup in the middle of the, of the ride and it's not going to be able to be metabolized quickly enough to give me the energy that I need. And since um, I'm running on a, a relatively low glycogen stores anyways, you know, I've got to give some energy for that. So that makes perfect sense within these, these higher level athletes. You know, we go to, uh, you know, an English Premier League, you know, footballer, you know, and, and they're running seven, eight miles during this time. A lot of sprints, start stops, you know, it's like they actually need that, that glycogen. They need the glucose and the carbs to be able to be able to meet the needs of that or a, a high performance swimmer like my Phelps. Now I can't speak to, you know, what the, you know, benefit or lack of benefit of eating at 10,000 calories of McDonald's. Like that just is like, that doesn't make sense to me. I think that's a bad idea. I think that there's other ways that you can get that caloric density, you know, that's going to be good for you. That doesn't have some of the, you know, crappy oils and crappy carbs that are part of, of what that's going to be uh, inherently. Um, and that's partly why, you know, trying to set people up um, to be able to have the tools as they go forward. You know, I, I said earlier, and I have this little visual I use when I'm talking, you know, it's like, well, here's someone and, you know, he's, he's walking down the path and he's walking down the path and, and he thinks because he doesn't have any symptoms that he's doing okay. But as he keeps walking down the path, now he starts developing symptoms. It's like, oh, I have to walk back this way in the other direction. Oops, sorry for the mic. In order to be able to, to start to get towards wellness. And if we develop really bad habits that are hard for us to break, um, then, you know, that's where we want to, you know, try to teach our kids some tools about, you know, having a good relationship with vegetables, you know, and we, you know, the, the idea of having some balance, but not rigidity in the diet. Um, that's how I approach it. So actually you bring up a good point or a topic I want to talk about, which is kids. Uh, setting them up for a nutritious diet. Cause I think that's, that's one of the things that a lot of us, 
uh we think to ourselves oh man if only i started these good habits when i was a kid then xyz you know and so we think about the next generation i'm a parent i got a three-year-old and a four-year-old i'm trying to do my best to get them on a uh a whole foods diet 80 20 thing get them enjoying things and one of the things i talked about um earlier which i'll, I'll talk really quickly here is one of the uh the ways i've i feel successful as a parent in terms of getting them to eat vegetables and organ meat and other types of nutritious whole foods is I, I take a page out of Stefan Guyanet's book, um, Guyanet, G-U-Y-E-N-E-T, for anyone who's curious, who talks about the palatability of food. I When my kids are hungry for dinner, that's the meal that I focus on, nutrient density, and I give them basically like a nine-course meal, starting with, when they're hungry, least palatable food, and then I work through the courses to most palatable, most delicious foods. I start with plain frozen vegetables, a medley, steam it i mean not least steam but microwave it with a little bit of water so it's basically steamed and uh give that to them plain no seasoning they eat it up it's actually a little bit sweet and then i do a little bit of organ meat just like a spoonful you know some like you know a liver hearts kidney and then uh you know some little bit of beans because the way i make my beans actually i think they're actually really delicious i do some um uh, salt pepper and some a little bit of lard a little bit of bacon fat just to flavor it oh so good and then the main course which is usually some some sort of starch typically rice and uh, a meat um some sort of start that's the main course dish followed by then the more palatable foods like the the, the our desserts is usually like fruits uh different types of fruits uh, sometimes a little bit of bamba, which is like this peanut dish, give them some, try to give them some uh, diversity, maybe a little bit of seaweed. Uh, and then finally, if they, uh, if they're, if it deemed appropriate for reward, a super special treat, like a little bit of a donut, a little bit of a cookie, something like that. If they had finished everything, that kind of stuff. So I, I personally found that successful working with palatability, but I, I but as a parent, I am trying to get, I want to do do right to get my kids set up for life with a good diet, a good gut microbiome. Uh, I was curious on your thoughts on just setting children up for health, trying to get them uh, started right with nutrition. Well, we we talked about this the other day, and and I, I love that that approach in terms of palatability and being able to think in that way. You know, so my my kids now are twenty six and twenty eight, and you know, working to what we did was really more restrict all of the, all the simple sugars and a lot of those treats, you know, early on, um, initially being vegetarian, then moving into omnivores, but really avoiding any kind of sweet ball. And what we did was we created, uh, you know, kids who were like craving sweets and they would go, you know, to their friends and, you know, they would, they would not have balance in their relationship to sweets. And we were able to work that out over time. Um, I'll tell you a little story about that, where, you know, my, my son was working on, a, a, a Olympic development soccer team and, you know, he was going to have the opportunity to be able to go and, uh, and play in Madrid and, and, uh, you know, kind of train with the, the youth team at, at Real Madrid. And, you know, he was like, well, I, I, I challenged him to, 30 days of no sugar and no gluten. And, uh, and we found was a difference in his training at that point in time. He was like 14, 15 years old. And he was able to feel it and notice the difference. And that really put him on a different nutritional path, you know, and so he, he began to feel the experience. And now he's got a balanced view with the whole thing. 
Um, but I think that getting your kids at a young age to be able to have balance, I think the palatability approach is great. You know, when I was in medical school back in the dark ages, you know, the early research was coming out uh, um, from the Bogalusa Heart Project and others, you know, that showed that uh, that the desire for sweets is 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 something that emerges early, and if we overdo it, um, then the the kids want nothing else. You know, and so finding a way to be able to move towards that sequential palatability and be able to and teaching them those aspects of balance, I think it's a great idea and a great way to be able to approach this. You know, the other thing is that, uh, you know, as you, you've said, like, so you're, you're getting fiber in there to help um initially to be able to get some distension and get the digestive processes going, you know, but we find that, that bringing in those proteins early, you know, so those organ meats in the process very early because they're going to be stimulating the digestive process in the stomach. That's really, it's the proteins that are going to be activating um, the, what are called chymotrypsin and our trypsinogen and trypsin and, trypsin and pepsin, sorry. Um, which are going to be breaking down the protein. So like getting those early in the sequence is going to be really quite important to be able to do, and whether it's organ meats or, you know, I mean, I'm um, non-denominational as it relates to which kinds of proteins. So, you know, some people um, think animal proteins are great. Uh, if you're going to do those, you want to make sure that they're organic grass fed if possible or wild fish, you know, doing that, if you're going to have, uh, you know, plant-based proteins, you know, making sure that they're organic and, you know, making sure that there's no, no reactivity that's going on. So, you know, eating good proteins, but getting that early in the cycle of, of feeding the kids is, and it's true for adults as well. Um, but, you know, doing that kind of process that you're doing, I think is a great way and an important way. And we have to be careful about the introduction of sweets. Um, but we do have to introduce them because if we don't, then we're going to have this kind of reactivity that occurs, you know, where they're going to be craving it because, you know, as I said, you need some sweetness in your life. Yeah. Yeah. I feel you on that. It's, it's one of those things that it just, as a parent, it feels like a struggle, especially I consider myself to be health conscious. And so I'm, I'm always trying to look out for what's the best. And it's easy to get overwhelmed with all this information. And I think a lot of my questions today stem from the, relatively health conscious person who's just trying to get it right and realizing I've been on both ends, right? Where the, if it fits your macro bro crowd of bro, I can get jacked off of just protein shakes and donuts and I can get super low body fat. And yes, I've been there. I've also been to the other place of, uh, well, perfection. I got to be like so paranoid about, oh crap, I had some gluten today. Am I going to have a flare up? Is, is this like, did I ruin my life for the next 30 years? And then finally just settling in the middle of what does good enough look like and what's, what's optimal enough. And that's, that's kind of where I've been in terms of, uh, you know, the health conscious journey that I think a lot of us go through. And so for my, uh, the next question I'm about to ask before I do that, I want to open this up for Q and A. We're doing another session of Q and A, so I'm going to clear the question queue. If you have any uh, questions you would like to do, go ahead and queue it up now. Exclamation mark Q. Type out exclamation mark Q. Type it out, and my bot will grab it. Um, my question uh, uh, for you about the health conscious crowd: What do you think today's health conscious crowd is is getting wrong? Or some things. Does that be the one thing? 
No, I mean, you, you, you yeah. Um, I'm trying to just feel into what arises in the, in the question, first of all. I think that, that, that first, in, in relationship to, to foods, the conversation that we've just been having, that there's some assumption that there is the one right thing, the holy grail of what I'm supposed to eat and what nutrients and, and nutritional supplements I'm supposed to be able to take. And I think that um, the health conscious crowd is overemphasizing um, the use of supplements. Uh, I think that they're, they're actually necessary to be able to help support, but they are not the answer. And that the things focus on, you know, those aspects of our modifiable lifestyle factors of the food we eat, what we're putting into our body, how much we sleep, how much we move and how we deal with the stresses. Like those are the principal things. And we need to focus on that a lot more. We're not going to supplement ourselves out of poor sleep. We are not going to um, minimize our foods or modify our macronutrient and micronutrient intake to deal with the fact that we're not moving and exercising. And, and if we're not dealing with the with stress in our life in a good way and stress is going to be there it is part of life you know we want to be able to um optimize it and, and not move from a place of distress as Selye talked about from a place of eustress of being able to deal with the you know the stresses of you know a wedding or a celebration or other new things that are going on and in fact you know we see that change is the only thing that's constant you know let's look at what's happened this year in everybody's lives and how are we dealing with the stressors of that of of decreasing um you know, changing relationships and changing the way in which we're connecting with people. And, and those are difficult. Those are stressors. How are we dealing with it? How are we finding balance? And, and let's not lose sight of that. And so I think that the health conscious crowd is sort of assuming that there is a, a holy grail of the one right diet and the one right set of nutritional supplements that is going to make all the difference in the world. And that's not what's going to happen. We need to be able to be in right relationship, you know, take time to listen to our body, you know, connect to each other, um, be out in the natural world. I think those are the, those are the key things from my perspective. Now I can go into other aspects, but that's really the big broad brushstroke on it. Great. Thank you. Our first question is from I Eat Stars. He says, why does the body, after having consumed all types of food and matter, I think he's referring to like junk food and stuff, uh, showing no signs of allergic reactions or sensitivity, all of a sudden it flips a switch because I, I know he, he recently had some issues with food. Uh, is there any chance I can regain the tolerance I once had or that I believed I had? And if so, how do I achieve this? Or is this something I just have to live with now? So we talked about this a little bit earlier and, and, you know, in the setting where someone has, has been able to eat many different kinds of, of foods and not have an issue, but really not be listening to what's going on. And then they move towards eating a, a healthier diet, one that's more whole food focused, um, that they do decrease their tolerance of some of these other foods that are, that are going to, you know, cause inefficiency and not work in the system as well. And one of the things that happens for all of us is that as time marches on, our reserves decrease and our capacity to be able to deal with these, um, these kinds of insults, you know, decreases. And so to that extent, it's like a decreased tolerance, but I, I like to know a little bit more. So if I'm, you know, sitting in a conversation with, I eat stars and 
you know, understanding exactly, well, what is, what is it the food that you're not tolerant to and what's happening at this point in time? Because it could be that there is some other inflammatory process that's going on. It could be, you know, that, that there is some kind of alteration in the gut microbiome that has been shifted um, due to changes in stress or sleep or, um, or movement and exercise separate from food or from an exposure. You know, I would say, you know, on the, on the personal level, you know, I had you know, kind of minor gut issues as I went through medical school, but um, I was uh, working at a uh, clinic in Nepal and got parasites, got a lot of parasites. And, uh, you know, I can say my gut, my guts have never been the same since that time. So like my, my window of, of what I have to pay attention to is much narrower than it was at an earlier point in my life. And so I would be looking to say, well, what is the trigger that changed it? Um, you know, there were no signs of sensitivity before now there are. And, and that's one of the things that a functional medicine practitioner does is like, we look at the timeline of what's happening and listen to the story. And we say, well, what's the trigger? What was happening in life right at that point in time when things tipped over? And then we start working with that trigger and related mediators, related, you know, similar kinds of things that we can help to be able to improve the reserves and improve the resilience of the system. You know, that, speaking of the triggers thing, I'll speak from personal experience. Um, well, 100% agree. My ankylosing spondylitis started in my mid-20s and uh, what triggered it? Well, I was going through the most stressful time of my life. Uh, by far, I was I was so stressed. One was I was uh, just bought my first house with a friend, uh, co-owning together and fixing it up. So I mean, it's good and bad to that. I won't get into the details. But there's obviously a lot of stress working with a partner and living with him and trying to make house decisions. Also, on top of that, I uh, broke up with my girlfriend at the time, who's my my wife. Helen and uh, we got obviously got back together happy ending but uh, it it was extremely stressful couple of months and I've never been that stressed in fact every morning I woke up around 5 or 6 a.m. unable to keep sleeping because I had a pit of stress in my stomach that I know a lot of uh, guys a lot of we, we you know manifest stress like that and then what happened a month or so of this daily stress waking up like this I then had boom the symptoms of AS manifest itself that was the, like the stress was the catalyst, like the match that just lit the haystack. And uh, sure enough, on top of the stress of waking up at 5 or 6 a.m., unable to sleep, uh, I also had the uh, well-known symptom of the uh, that the my mid-back around T8 to T12 or, you know, mid-lower back, that pain of sleeping more than five or six hours. I would just get that excruciating pain where I can't sleep anymore. I have to get up and walk around. So all of this stuff just started stacking and stacking. And it was it was a quick downward spiral, which uh, led me on this very long journey of trying to figure out what is wrong with me, the, looking into functional medicine, figuring out that, you know, my trigger is basically stress and gluten, reduce those. I'm in a much better place. I don't I don't need uh, I don't need medication. Uh, I'm, I'm OK. Uh, and so I just completely agree. Like, I think it's so important to look at what is like what is causing these issues? I always say chronic problems usually have chronic sources and we should start looking at what's going on day to day with our, with our life. So, yeah. Uh, and, and just to jump back to 
when talking about AS earlier. And so stress will cause changes in the distribution of the gut bacteria. We'll see an increase in gram negative bacteria uh, that are present there, especially if there is any fear component that is involved. And we also know that the same kinds of stressors will increase permeability in the gut, leaky gut. And so both of those things in the setting of a genetic predisposition, you know, were set up for you too. Those were the things that, that tipped you over. Could have been other kinds of triggers, but it gave you, because you listened and you said, okay, well, what was happening here? And you've gone to then understand how that trigger that happened at that point in time is a trigger that you need to be aware of, you know, from now and in the future. And so that's why you're, you're spending time working on and, and, you know, both asking good questions, but looking at yourself and listening to what's happening in your body. And, and fortunately that's kind of rare uh, these days. I, I you know, hope that there's, you know, a number of people out there who say like, okay, well, I'm, I'm willing to, you know, do the work and be able to investigate that and see what's, what's going on, what's underneath it. Yeah. Well, one of the things about my story is, um, I like my, my back pain became so crippling because I actually was dealing with two issues at once, probably related to the, it could be related from the, to the AS, but one was couldn't sleep more than five hours a night, basically in pain-free for the AS, right? Mid, mid lower back pain flaring up t8 through t12 on the spine the second issue was i was having um piriformis syndrome entrapping the sciatic nerve so that excruciating sciatic nerve pain um completely crippling me to the point where i had to use a cane in my early 20s i was using a cane i couldn't sit for long hours i was in so, so much um pain that it would like i'd rather just black out than deal with the pain because of how bad it was i was crawling to the bathroom in the middle of the night um it, because it, i it was so painful to walk that it was easier just to crawl to the bat to get to the toilet in the middle of the night. And so um, it, it, about my story, when you get to that low of you're crawling to the bathroom, you can't put your own underwear on in your early 20s, you just hit this low of desperation of I'll do anything. I don't care what it is. I'll try anything. And so that level of desperation is what sadly it took for me to really – appreciate health and appreciate my body and just do what whatever it takes i'm going to figure out an answer i'm going to start like tight you know doing like study of n equals one if i change this variable does anything improve i never gave up on that hope that there is a way out of this a lot of that actually came to a discussion i had with a friend at church because you know i kept crippling i was, I was very crippled and hobbling hobbling walking around everyone asked like oh what's wrong with your ankle it's not my ankle it's my back oh what's wrong on your back oh you should go see a doctor i did see a doctor yeah, you should go see a chiropractor i did see many chiropractors it's like i'm going through over and over until finally there was one guy who said oh yeah i had back problems too i said yeah i don't think it's bad as me he's like no worse he had some very similar problems but numbing pain months of numbed leg pain and then he then i got hope He's like, you're better. He's playing basketball. He seems normal again. And he, and he told me. And so that, that set me off on the journey of there's got to be an answer. And so I just kept looking and trying new things. Unfortunately, wasted lots of money on stupid things that didn't do anything. But is money well wasted in this, this journey of recovery and learning to listen to my body? So you were smiling for a second. Did you, did you have something to, to chime in on? Well... I mean, I think it's a great story, but one of the things that's, that's unique is that you, 
you went into that N of one and said, I'm going to, I'm going to work, I'm going to investigate, but you know, there's ads that, you know, many times they're, they're coming on, you know, and CNN or one of the, you know, other kind of channels at nighttime, you know, of these biologics for ankylosing spondylitis, um, which actually weren't out there, you know, at the time that you had the problem, but now they're really pushing them. They're pushing them because, you know, the, the injections are, you know, costing, you know, two to $5,000 a month. Uh, and, and they do get rid of the problem, but they don't get to the source of the problem. And they do have some long-term consequences in terms of suppressing the immune system. And we don't know the full extent of what those consequences are. And you did it, you know, by saying, what can I do to go upstream and, and the root cause and listen to the triggers? Uh, and it's not easy work to do. Um, and as I said before, you know, it, it wasn't prevention. It was like you started having symptoms and that's what caused you the, um, gave you the passion to really be able to discover what's underneath this. And I'm, I'm so pleased that you did it because it's, uh, it's a great story and I hope it inspires others as well. Yeah, definitely. I've had actually uh, ankylosing spondylitis folks. I, I had like one or two viral posts about ankylosing spondylitis that occasionally people actually find and they find my, my Twitch channel and they, they talk to me about it. And I, I'm really glad that they find me because then I, I, I'm, a, I'm a story of hope for a lot of them. And for those who want to read more about my story and the, the, um, the, little variables I was tweaking. You can go to TominationTime.com slash leaky gut and you can see a lot of the details in terms of what I was trying and tweaking. And just full disclosure, so about the Humera stuff, because I was on Humera for a while. Um on and off I, I would tweak it with like taking out gluten and stress and then going on and off Humera. Did it fix it? So you can see the full details at TominationTime.com slash leaky gut. Um I'm currently on a very low dose of Humira that I'm, I I pretty much don't feel like I need and I probably will drop it soon enough, but um, I'm still doing a little bit more tweaking and testing till I completely just, bleh, I'm done with that. But it, it's, it's way better than before. Before I needed it every two weeks. Now I'm like once every couple of months and I barely notice it. Sometimes I forget. So I, I honestly don't feel like I need it at this point, but I'm, I'm at that, I'm getting to that stage of just like, yeah, let's just stop. So... Um, yeah. Hey, can, so you said uh, it's, you know, domination time slash leaky gut. Now, I want to just take a minute and, um, and talk about this idea of leaky gut or intestinal yes. permeability. Because within, within uh, functional medicine, this is something that we've been talking about for over 30 years. You go back to the original research from Dr. Bjarnson, you know, well-known gastroenterologist at uh, uh, King's College. King's College, King's College in London, you know, who, who studied it and demonstrated, and yet it was um, poo-pooed, maybe the wrong word, denigrated, <laughs> um, you know, indicated as being, you know, a sort of um, fool's gold um, by gastroenterologists for many, many years. And yet we found that there was something that actually stimulating the immune system and a subset of people who were having problems. And then we feed forward to the work of Dr. Alessio Fasano, who's, you know, the head of mucosal biology, mucosal immunology, gastroenterologist, immunologist at Harvard. Um, you know, he demonstrated, you know, what was going on. He did it in the model of celiac disease, but then talked about it as relating to, you know, many, many autoimmune diseases. And uh, now we've seen it emerge and talking about intestinal permeability in the GI literature. And there are new uh, kinds of tools, including a, a, a really cool one 
with the, the crazy name of confocal laser endomicroscopy, which means that they can go in with an endoscope that's got a microscope at the end of it. And it's a, it's a, a two-headed microscope and they can look at the, the individual cells and they can see different foods that will cause changes in permeability in, in individuals. And so it's not like just a conceptual thing. It's like, okay, we can, now we can see it physically. And so we see the emergence of this idea of, you know, how to work with permeability and, you know, it's an important underlying aspect of dealing with autoimmune diseases, such as ankylosing spondylitis. And, uh, and I think it's a, uh, Part of in functional medicine, we focus on you know sort of early clinical translation and what are the accelerables that are going to help us in the process. You know, so we've been looking at the role of fissure. We've been looking at issues of methylation. We've been looking at the gut micro. Talking about the gut microbiome for thirty years now. It's you know it's all in the literature and everyone's talking about it. And yet the the thought leaders will say, well, it's still not ready for prime time. And I look at that and say, like I've been using it as a tool for thirty years. The tool continues to be refined, but it already makes a difference. Helping leaky gut already makes a difference. And there are basic principles that we can use and apply. So we're not talking about something that is some voodoo from out of nowhere. We're talking about taking science, listening to what's happening in, in biology and in pathophysiology and seeing how do these things relate. And that's a critical aspect of what functional medicine is doing. Cause it's not just trying to take, you know, Oh, let me just take fish and throw it at this. Oh, you know, let me take, you know, B vitamins and throw it at this or magnesium, but rather let's really understand what's happening with the individual, what the triggers are and where the imbalances are and treat them in that way. And that's what you kind of did intuitively of bringing yourself into this process. Yeah. And, you know, to touch on Dr. Fasano, because I think he it's it's he. So to summarize or like um, to talk on that for a second, uh, Dr. Fasano in the 90s, he discovered zonulin. And to me, that was like the hard scientific breakthrough of this isn't just like voodoo, like you're saying. This is this is hard science. Like we know that zonulin is a hormone in the gut that regulates the the uh, gut junction barrier. Like this is this is not just like oh this could be placebo where you're not eating gluten and that's why you feel better. Like no, like we know gluten causes zonulin regulation. So when I get a lot of um because you know I, I I'm on the internet I talk with other evidence based people yeah I, I run into that crowd all the time where they say if you're not celiac then why are you avoiding gluten? It's only for celiac disease and like they just get on that and like well have you heard of zonulin? Like this is a real thing. Sure, fine. We don't have large-scale, double-blind, randomized, placebo-controlled trials showing that ankylosing spondylitis is, you know, the root cause of AS is gluten. Fine. We, we aren't there yet. But what's the risk of experimenting your diet, eliminating some things to see if you feel better? Like, this isn't, we're not talking about getting surgery. We're not talking about doing these high-risk interventions. We're talking about temporary taking out and tweaking your diet to see, do you notice a difference? And so... <clears throat> A lot of the uh, – what I see from my perspective, the evidence-based crowd on the internet, there's a certain bandwagon of, of, of zealots who are just like – they're so quote-unquote evidence-based. They, they, they're the, the, the warriors who say, you're not celiac. Why are you avoiding gluten? And so that camp, um, I tell them like, look, we, we don't live in laboratories. We can't wait for double-blind randomized placebo-controlled trials of a million people to come out to confirm this hypothesis. Like – 
I mean, I mean I, there's clinical evidence out there. You're a doctor. You're, you you have clinical evidence. This like this type of intervention works. It's low risk. Like, why aren't we just suggesting people try try this out? It's not like they're believing in voodoo. They're just making small tweaks and see if you have a a really a really major upside. Right. The other piece in that is that they're also looking at, uh, we're not looking at the literature that says 10 to 20% population may have um, gluten um, or not that gluten sensitivity. Yep. And that's well described in the literature. And, and we know that, that from, from Fasano's work that the, that the gluten is going to cause permeability issues. And so it may not be the cause of what's happening for you, but it, it clearly is a mitigating factor or a, a mediator of the process that's going on. So it's reasonable to be able to give that as a, as a consideration you know, for a trial. And you know, I'm with you on that. Um, I'm wondering, I don't know how much you've read of Dr. Fasano, but I, I, you know, in talking about uh, you know, how to deal with stress, um, I love his story because what happened was is he was an immunologist and, and gastroenterologist, and he was working on creating a vaccine for diphtheria. Yep, I, yeah, you know, and, I know, I know the story. So diphtheria, you know, it, yeah, and, and, and what happened was is that, you know, they identified, they made a scene to the particular diphtheria toxin and, and it worked in, in rats and, there were, and so they started to give it in humans. You know, it's a very small trial. In, in, in that setting, what they did is they were actually giving people diphtheria. They gave them the vaccine and then they gave them diphtheria. Now you can, you can die from diphtheria from becoming um, dehydrated you know, because it just causes a watery diarrhea. And so they did it, you know, in the first six patients and they all got sick and he was just like, Oh my God, you know, wh what have I done? I made people sick. My work that I've done up to this date, you know, it doesn't have any meaning. And, you know, he said after, after spending a week of drowning his sorrows, you know, he came back and he's like, why did that happen? You know, like what's going on? Something else is happening there. And that led him to discover Zonulin, which I think is such a great story of crisis and opportunity. And, you know, like we can see something and it's like, if we just keep working and looking and using it as a tool to help us to be able to go forward, um, it, it helps us in our healing. And uh, I, I think it's a great story. That's why I wanted to just share it and, uh, and then further validated all of what we've been talking about around intestinal permeability for the past 30 years. Absolutely. We're, we're coming up uh, on time. We have less than 30 minutes left. So I'm gonna just take a couple more questions. Um, uh, Praise Treesis asks, uh, you mentioned the importance of seeking out organic foods when possible. Why is eating organic important? And I'll also so say one more thing contextually. Reason. I want to add one, one more thing to that, which is uh, from from a, a, a finance perspective, I, I kind of understand where it's coming from in that uh, cost can be an issue too in terms of, well, if I buy blueberry or you know, organic blueberries versus regular blueberries – yeah, that's going to impact my my you know my bottom line financially. I don't know how long how sustainable this is. So that being said, uh, sorry, go ahead. So let's uh, parse it out a little bit because um, first, you know, let's talk about local foods versus organic foods, 
and local foods are great. If you can eat local foods, go there. And then you want to look at the environmental working group and their dirty dozen and their clean 15. You know, and so if you're, if you're taking something like a strawberry, which year over year is always considered the most toxic thing, like don't eat inorganic strawberries because they're going to have pesticides on them and you want to avoid that. Now, what we find is that with locally produced foods and with organic foods is that the mix of other kinds of uh, bioflavonoids and, uh, and polyphenols uh, that are in there are much, much greater than the, than the, than the degree of other nutrients. Now, I'm not just talking about the, um, you know, carb fat protein ratio or talking about the, uh, the micronutrient um, that are present in them. We do see that in the standardized farming, there has been a loss of, of micronutrients in terms of minerals uh, on the order of 35 to 70% over the past 50 years. That's looking at data from 1950 to 2000. And so we find that, that using um, other kinds of farming methods and looking at organic food, we do increase the nutritional richness and diversity of what is going on at that point in time. And so there's studies that demonstrate this, but we want to particularly highlight those things, um, the, the clean 15 and the dirty dozen and, and really avoiding the dirty dozen and that organics have been demonstrated in more recent studies to have a higher, higher nutritional value. Um, and so there it's going to be a choice point along the way, you know, how far do I want to go along that continuum? And when I talked about I also talked about the importance of eating uh, wild or and or grass fed and or organic meats and chicken because toxins and pesticides and by and organotoxins they um, what's uh, what's the word they bioaccumulate so the higher we go up the food chain the more in which they're going to accumulate and so if we're looking at a uh, a chicken or a cow that is being fed you know feedlot or a farmer raised fish you know they're going to be getting things that they're going to be exposed to increased toxins uh, and those are going to be in the food that we're eating so doing the best we can to uh, optimize organic foods and wild, um, wild and organic meats, uh, in particular. So I want to take a devil's advocate position here because, uh, again, I hear a lot from the evidence-based crowd, and they have a certain um, they their perspective and their counter argument to to what you said is they would point to look, pest, where's the evidence that pesticides are that bad for us? The, the government has done lots of studies on a big scales showing that there's we can't see any direct impact from the pesticides. Uh, so therefore, it is such small doses, we're probably okay. We should be okay. What say you? Well, I mean, we have over 2,000 pesticides uh, and, and herbicides that are in circulation that have been, been approved by the FDA. And when they look at the individual things, they look at, okay, let's just look at this one and see what the dose is. That's okay. There have been no studies that have been looking at, well, how about if the two of them are together? Well, how about if 2,000 of them are together? You know, what do we see there? Those studies haven't been done. Now, now, that doesn't mean that there's a problem, but it, it means that we actually don't have data on what the current situation. You're breaking up right now. Could you repeat that last sentence? We don't have data on the current situation. Uh, that's the last thing I heard you say. We, 
Yeah, it was it's getting a little bit uh, yeah, choppy. Something was just unstable. I got it. We don't have. Yeah, I just saw that. Um, we don't have data on the on the current situation. It doesn't mean that it is wrong de facto, uh, but we do need to be able to evaluate what's happening with the current situation. So a way in which I do that is I look at a simple um, liver marker called GGT, uh, gamma glutamyl transferase which is when it's elevated above 25, we see that there's an increased risk that it's associated with organotoxins and it's associated with an increased risk of developing prediabetes, metabolic syndrome and diabetes. So that seems like a useful thing to be able to focus on and then say, okay, now let's work to take that out of your diet and work with sauna and work with some other things to help you, know, you in the detoxification process of what's going on. And that's one of the things that I do and I work with with patients around that. And so we, um, we want to be able to ask these questions and to be able to look at this and, and the presence of the persistent organic pollutants and what effect they have on disease. You know, we can look at, at epidemiologic data of people who've been exposed to varying concentrations of, you know, let's say glyphosate or of other kinds of uh, herbicides and pesticides. And we can see that the disease rates increase in people who have closer proximity to those things. So now this is all epidemiologic data and we don't have double blind randomized control clinical trials to be able to do that. So we're doing our best because this stuff is already in circulation. And, you know, I, I think that from an evidence-based perspective, like, well, let's include this evidence in the conversation, because when I, I hear people say there's no evidence to support that, it's like, well, let's have a conversation and look at this evidence and say, well, how does this make sense? Um, you know, the, the proximity of increased illness, the, the presence of persistent organic pollutants and the role of, of uh, insulin resistance, you know, or other inflammatory conditions. We do see correlations that are happening there. And I think we need to take them into account. And we do see that the, the decrease in the nutrient status of foods that have been conventionally raised. And we do see the increase in the amount of, uh, of other um, nutrients that are present in organic foods. So this is all circumstantial data. I'm gonna be clear about that. You know, we're, we're putting the pieces together and it makes intuitive sense that we want to give the bodies the best things that are possible. And we gotta weigh that against what the, what the relative costs are. Uh, to be able to do that. That's why, you know, I, I like the ewg.org uh, delineation because for some foods, it's not going to make a big difference. And for other foods, it's going to make a big difference. And again, you know, buying local, work with a CSA, grow your own foods, that's going to be the best way. So I, I want to go off of that a little bit in terms of talking about the what's good enough. And is it is it safe to say, if, if you know, if I'm an average person listening to this, I'm trying to save money. Um, and if I just try all organic for a couple of weeks, cut everything out and I feel, and I don't feel any difference between like, let's just say, uh, all my fruits, vegetables, meats, everything I, for like a month, I spend the extra money on wild caught, local grass fed. I go premium as much as possible. I don't feel any different. Then is it safe to say that I'm probably going to be okay if I just eat mostly inorganic, you know, unfortunately, you know, factory fed, all that kind of factory farm, that kind of stuff? Well, the effects of chronic disease are, are due to chronic imbalances that are going on. So 
you know, I, I can't answer that question. And I don't expect that, that someone's going to see uh, a change in their overall health status in a one month period of time of being able to do that. That's why I say incrementally approach it, you know, the top of the food chain, you know, go with, um, go with animal products that are going to be organic or, or wild, uh, um, wild or grass fed first. Uh, as a means of being able to decrease your overall exposure because it's the bio, bioaccumulation and then look at the, the clean 15 or look at the dirty dozen and say, okay, you know, I should, I should really pay attention to these. You know, like those are simple ways to be able to do it, you know, that can affect changes right away in your, uh, you know, in your life. Okay. It's, it's speaking of the soil based, the soil stuff, a question from Rob Boss is, have you prescribed any soil-based probiotics to your patients? Have you seen any success with them? So there's a lot of hype around soil-based organisms at this point in time. Um, the idea that, you know, um, we are what we eat um, is, is important and that, you know, we know clearly the immunologic effects of, of people um, playing in, in soil at, at a young age and the, what Graham Rook uh, put as the old friends hypothesis. And, and so there's value in the idea. There's actually no data yet on the soil-based organisms in terms of effect on disease. So I, I, I'm data-driven in my approach around probiotics, and I, I focus a lot more on prebiotics and foods that are going to help the beneficial bacteria to grow. And then when there's specific probiotics that help for specific disease states, you know, and so we can talk about, uh, you know, Bifidobacter infantis three five six two four for IBS, or we can talk about uh, VSL three in a combination of you know, three strains of lactobacillus, four species of bifidobacter and strep thermophilus at, at really high doses and its effect on ulcerative colitis. And we can talk about uh, um, what is the one uh, um, lactobacillus rhamnosus uh, DSM 17938, something like that. And its effect on, on autism and behavioral changes. So like, I'm a big fan of probiotics to be able to use, um, but we're using them as medicines at that point in time. The global use of probiotics to be able to help with immune regulation um, in theory sounds great in practice has not yet been proven. You know, so soil-based microorganisms, if we go to organizations that are selling them, we say, well, where's the data? And they'll show you some cell culture you know, of human cells, or they'll, they'll show you some data from rats that say the rats don't have quite as many problems. Um, that's interesting, but that's experimental. Now, if you want to use that to be able to go from I believe that we are going to find that there are benefits. Uh, for instance, there's uh, one out of Africa, um, out of Senegal, uh, called Mycobacterium vacae um, that has been able to demonstrate some overall improvements in um, decreasing anxiety and decreasing fear-based reactivity. Pretty cool data out of the out of the DoD. Um, you know, that's, that's coming forward, but you know, that's still in a very early phase of being able to do that. So have I prescribed, I've tried a few of them with patients, haven't seen any big, big benefit. Um, not certainly not what's been promised. Um, I think that it will uh, come into the fore. I think there will be specific, um, species and specific strains that will show specific therapeutic effects, you know, and I'll continue to look at that. Uh, 
Uh, Jason Harberlach, uh, the probiotic advisor out of uh, Tasmania, is one of the best people in terms of the data set that he has. Uh, great person, most knowledgeable person on probiotics in the world, as far as I'm concerned. You know, and and uh, he talks about it in a very similar way uh, to which I'm talking about it here. Um, ISAPP, uh, the International Society for Advancement of Pre and Probiotics, another great uh, website, and they've got some interesting tools um, to be able to look at and follow in, in terms of identifying which probiotics have which effects. Um, but I'm gonna, you know, on a clinical side right now, um, I don't use them clinically, soil-based organisms. And when I teach to doctors around the world, I share the exact data that I'm sharing right here. That is maybe someday, not yet. Okay, thank you. And uh, speaking of clinical experience, Barrick has a question about uh, your experience with, that you've seen with H. pylori, um, just unexpected symptoms that turned out to be related to H. pylori and or so, uh, treatment strategies. Can you hear me okay? I just yep. dropped my mic. Yeah, it's okay. It happens. All right. Yeah, you sound, you sound good. You sound the same. So just treatment strategies and unexpected so, symptoms with H. pylori. Yeah. Well, I want to come back and talk about H. pylori a little bit. So Helicobacter pylori. If we look at indigenous populations around the world, 100% of those populations have H. pylori. They're a part of the gut flora uh, in the upper gut, in the, in, the, uh, in the stomach, and they're quite common. And so the correlation that, uh, that Dr. Marshall made in the, in the 80s where he was you know, biopsying people who had, um, who had peptic ulcer disease and he found these present in a Western population in Australia and he then isolated it and found that it was helicobacter pylori um, and then uh, famously you know took a took a potion of it himself and developed an ulcer and and went on and, and won the nobel prize for that work nobel prize in medicine for that work that he did you know demonstrating that it is a causative agent however we see that the vast majority of people who have h pylori are not developing peptic ulcer disease and so it, it begs the question of well, just because it's there, does it need to be treated? And we know that there are a subset of H. pylori that are actually more pathogenic, bigger problem. And we don't have an assay yet to be able to determine um, or to be able to use that in clinical practice. It seems to relate to something called a KGA protein uh, that injects a hole into the stomach um, that is from the H. pylori. So that's just giving you some background. Now I'm going to give you another piece of background that, um, you know, when I was in uh, in my early 30s, uh, I was working on the Bering Sea with the Yupik Eskimo people. And it was well known that there was blood in the stool of, of just about every patient who we checked. And we didn't know why. And so we, we evaluated it and we took, uh, we measured it in 200 people, found blood in, in everybody, um, and took the top 54, 57 people and, uh, and evaluated them with endoscopy, scoping from above and colonoscopy did it with uh, um, with a group from the, the Mayo Clinic, Dr. David Alquist, who's published it in JAMA and Dr. Ray Yip, who's working at the CDC. And what we found was that 56 out of 57 people had H. pylori, and that was the cause of their small amount of bleeding that was going on in their stomach. Now, none of them 
and peptic ulcer disease, we treated them all with triple therapy, which was the state of the art at that point in time. And we found that, you know, at, uh, um, I believe it was a three month period of time, you know, we had an eradication in about 80% of the population. But when they were tested again, a year later, 100% had it again. So it's like, is it really a problem? And, and so I asked that question. So if I have someone who's got H. pylori and they're not having uh, symptoms that are related to ulceration, I clinically am not automatically treating it because I feel like the now quadruple therapy that we use, which includes a proton pump inhibitor and multiple antibiotics is going to have an effect on the overall microbiome. And we find this paradoxical thing that when you treat H. pylori, the rates of GERD, the rates of reflux go up. So you reduce the H. pylori and now you have more reflux symptoms that are going on. So I think that we're blaming the wrong thing at this point in time and that it is a, a part of the normal flora. And in patients who have some, some degree or history of peptic ulcer disease who have it, definitely go ahead and treat it. I also want to say that um, that stool testing that looks at the DNA is not validated. Stool testing that looks at the specific antigen is validated and breath testing is validated. And those are the tools that you use, you know, but there are some stool tests that are out there uh, from companies that are measuring lots of different things and they measure the DNA. It has no relationship to actually having the antigen actively present in your, in your stool. So that's sort of an extra side note on it. Um, you know, so, you know, in, in terms of, uh, um, you know, like what are the symptoms that are going on? And so if they're GERD like symptoms and you've got H pylori, it's like, well, actually, if you treat it, those symptoms are probably going to get worse. Um, so there's a, a, a dance around this and then it goes to, well, how do I help the balance of the gut microbiome overall and what's happening with my acid production? And, and I would come from a functional medicine standpoint and dig in and, and try to understand a little bit more about what's happening there. Now, if you're scoped and you find out that there's actually H. pylori there and there's some early ulceration, absolutely get treated. Um, but it ends up being that, uh, you know, probably only about 15 to 20% of patients I see who have it, do I recommend treatment for. And while I may be considered, you know, just some, you know, um, Twitch Yahoo doctor, you know, who doesn't have any grounding, um, read the work of uh, Dr. Marty Blazer, a GI doc at, uh, in, at Columbia in New York, um, and his book called Missing Microbes, uh, that talks about the alterations in the gut microbiome. Uh, overall over the past uh, 50 to 100 years. And he speaks a lot about H. pylori and says basically the same thing that I've just said here. Okay, great. Thank you for that. And we're pretty much out of time for questions. And so the, the final thing is, uh, where can people find you? And do you take virtual consults? <laughs> I do. Um, and we're booked up right now. Um, we've gone to virtual consults, uh, you know, beginning in March. 
Um, I much prefer and look forward to the time when I can at least see people in person one-on-one uh, -on -one for the first visit. But uh, no, I do take virtual consults. Um, my practice is called Family to Family. That's Family to Family, Family to Family. It's my wife and I. I'm actually in her treatment room at this point in time. So we see that she does some work with birthing and we've got a, a, a papoose back here. And um, you know, so I'm, I'm in her um, treatment room right at this point in time, uh, familytofamily.org in Asheville, North Carolina. And what about, are you active on any social media platform in particular? No, not at this point in time. We're, we're working on it. it it's more, um, you know, a lot of my work has been focused on being able to do the research to validate the underpinning of the functional medicine model. As you said, I, you know, I spent uh, five years uh, initially as medical director and then as research director at the Center for Functional Medicine at the Cleveland Clinic um, and, uh, and doing education of clinicians around the world uh, through the Institute for Functional Medicine. And that's where my primary focus has been uh, rather than on building any, any personal brand of rather trying to do the education and research that underpins the broader movement. Um, so I do encourage people to check out the Institute for Functional Medicine uh, and the work that they're doing. Uh, both broadly and as well as while we've not talked about it as um, you know recommendations as it relates to decreasing the severity of COVID and looking at vaccines and things of that nature as well at ifm.org. Um, that's the that's the place where I'm doing most of my work. Yeah, if I can plug that for a second, actually ifm.org people can search for other uh, you know functional medicine doctors there, right? And also, uh, if you guys like Dr. Hanaway's stuff, go check out his other content that he's done out there because he has a lot to say on COVID-19. I thought it was, it was pretty great and thorough, um, the other stuff that I found. So if you guys uh, are, are curious about his thoughts on COVID-19, go check that stuff out. It's, it's hours of content. Um, well, Dr. Hanaway, this has been absolutely fantastic. Thank you for being here and spending so much time having this chat. I had a lot of fun. I hope I hope you did too. I did. I did. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much for inviting me and, you know, great questions along the way. And I know when you said, well, we could talk for a long time. I'm like, well, really, you know, but uh, I kind of feel like uh, we're still only scratching the surface. There's so many other kinds of questions and so many other places we can go. And I hope, uh, you know, if you want that you invite me back in the future. Oh, I would absolutely love it to have you back because I, I could pick your brain for hours. There's, there's so many questions, so many things I wanted to keep talking about. So we could probably make something happen because I know there's definitely other topics that I'm sure you uh, want because uh, because you do the research, I can help you do the content and just give you a place to say, hey, this is some cool stuff coming out that we should draw more attention to. And I, I can, you know, I would love to help facilitate that because as a researcher, you may not be able to to speak or get your message out there as much as you want to, right? Yeah, it feels that way. And, and, and yet more and more people are, are finding this and they're finding that it makes sense. You know, when I explain this to, to other doctors, when I explain it to patients, they're like, well, that makes perfect sense. Like that's, isn't, isn't all medicine like that? Like, well, no, not right now, but uh, we're working on it. Um, still, but sure. Right. Sounds good. Once again, Dr. Hanaway, thank you again so much for your time here. I I'm going to be listening to this podcast again to like to digest it because it's so information dense. So once again, thank you and have a good day. If this podcast earned it, please consider leaving a review on iTunes. We're new to the podcast space and we will be reading all the feedback. Also, 
If you like the content, follow us on twitch.tv slash time and keep notifications on for when we go live. Feed your brain, feed your body, and we'll see you next time.